Eliana, thanks for coming. Hi. This is dope. This is so cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been trying really hard to get professionals. <laughs> you know, like, I'm a neurologist, right? Yeah. Like, I need to try to get that side out. Mm-hmm. And I've just had DJ after DJ after DJ, mm-hmm. which is amazing and it's mm-hmm. cool. But I want, I want the other side of myself to yeah. come into focus. You're a total geek. Well, I guess DJs are geeks, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In their own way. In their own way. But there's so much healing that, that is needed out there. There's, there's really like this big opportunity. Endless. And um, before we start, I do want to say, because I don't say this often enough, that while I am a doctor, nothing I say here is medical advice. <laughs> if you have a problem, go seek professional help. Mm-hmm. Um, like with my friend Liana. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Um, but not here. Right. In but this not moment. Here. This is not. This is, yeah. This is us talking yes. about our own experiences and, and kind of things we've been through, how we feel about things. But it's not a replacement for any kind of actual therapeutic relationship or mm-hmm. professional guidance that you may need. Mm-hmm. And you probably do <laughs> if you're listening to this. Yeah, we all do. <laughs> um, you weren't always a therapist. You had... Uh, an entire life before that. That's Had many I lives. <laughs> Basically a cat. Uh, many lives. Um, I don't know. Where should I start? How far back should I go? Well, can you, rem- do, do you have an idea of how we know each other? Because I was trying to figure that part out. Is like, was it Pit okay. or the Shadow Lounge? Or- That's a great question. I don't know if I know. I, I, my first thought was like, I thought I knew you since high school. Whoa. But then, am I wrong? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I came to Pittsburgh in 2005 okay, then, for yeah, college. No. I mean, I was no. at, pre, I like did Carnegie Mellon It must have been 2005. Yeah. 2005? Yep. Yep. Oh my gosh. My, and then you were here for, till when? Till 2011. I, I did that's two years so after college. Weird. So we actually didn't know each other for a very long period of time. Because that's mostly when I was in California. Whoa. So we, I think we met. We probably met on holidays many times. I feel like whenever yes. I would come home, we would see each other. Yes. And then I actually had moved back here in 2009. So I feel like that's when we probably spend the majority of our time together. Yeah. And I was mm-hmm. really, really heavy in the DJing game in, in 2009. Like 2009 to yeah. 2011, I was working for UPMC in a research mm-hmm. lab. Mm. But that's 40 hours a week, right? Like. The whole other 120 hours. I don't remember how many there are, but neither do I. <laughs> 24 <laughs> times seven. It's like approximately what? 25 times seven is 175. I guess. So 40, 135 hours. I was, <laughs> I was DJing. Yeah. And I was probably dancing. That's probably what I was doing. Yeah. That was my primary, uh, that was Therapy, pretty much, yeah, maybe, that's pretty right? much in some ways. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's, I'm like, should we jump ahead to why I am a therapist? But yeah, I'll so, make sure I bring that into the loop. So too. were you at Pitt? Did you? No, did you I to went Pitt? to school actually. Um, so obviously I have a, a graduate degree in, in um, clinical psychology, which is wow. what I do now. Yeah. But I did not do that first. I went to fashion school. I went to FIDM, which is the Fashion Institute in Los Angeles when wow. I was 18. Wow. Um, that's the first thing that I did. It was a uh, phenomenal education, actually. Um, sometimes I think about it as like that was me using my powers for evil. And now I use my powers for good. <laughs> but I learned a lot about myself, about the world, 
um, during that time. And I lived there until about 2000. So I guess it was 2004 to 2009 when everything sort of crashed down. I moved back here. I was lost. I didn't know what I was going to do. I went back to school. I studied, um, uh, I went to Chatham. I studied cultural studies, race and gender studies, um, history. And, um, I have always been an activist my entire life. I think I was just, I'm an adoptee. So I feel like that was just going to be part of who I was always anyway. And then, uh, so that kind of fueled my choices. And so, so I, I think both of my parents were social workers. They were kind of like, don't do this. You're not going to make any money. I know you like to help people. This is probably not the right direction. Even though I think they secretly wanted me to do that anyway. And then, so I was like, all right, I guess I'll just do what my best friend at the time was doing. I guess I'll just go to fashion school. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I really didn't know. Um, so that's what I did. Um, I'm really good at design and seeing the bigger picture and talking and it worked out. It was a great education, but it was just not what I wanted to do. So I came back here and I dove headfirst into pretty much like black radical history and it changed my whole trajectory for the better. (laughs) The things you learn in design school, in fashion school, you're you're designing with fabric and designing with color Mm -hmm. and with textures. When you're doing therapy, you're putting somebody's life together too and trying to get it in order and designing, but with thoughts and with emotions and with Mm -hmm. relationships. I think I think about it more as the, so, and so yes, there's the side of fashion where you are making things um, and the creative side of it. And then there is the side, which is business. Um, I, I studied primarily the business side of it, a lot of marketing. So it was a lot of psychology. So, but it, it's, yeah, like I said, sort of the psychology of capitalism, right. And very much the psychology of who are these people you want to sell to? What are their insecurities and what are we going to give them, give to them? And it was very clear and, and it's very fascinating because you would literally create these Excel sheets and it might say, and I could make it up. Isaac. And I would literally say every single thing about this sort of like imaginary person that most of us are basing on a real person Whoa! down to what you listen to, what you eat, what your friends are like, what are your politics, everything. I mean, it's really, this is like a big data piece, Mm -hmm. like the, um, metadata. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about it today because I got my Spotify wrapped my, um, yep. 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 um, For podcasters Mm -hmm. today. You know, it wasn't just telling me like who was listening to my podcast. It was mm-hmm. telling me what other music they liked and how old they were and where yep. they live. And Whoa, yeah. Um, All the demographics. How they, how they got the link. It was like, wow. Um, <laughs> it was like, your most popular, you know, episode was this one and it was shared by text message 75% of the time. 20% of the time it was shared on Instagram and 5% on like wow. Facebook. It's like, whoa. I think that's so interesting because you know I don't, I feel like most people don't even know that you get that. Like if you are a person who is like posting to Spotify. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's both fascinating and scary in its own way. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, I was thinking about like immediately the Faye Miller character on Mad Men. Oh, yeah. Like her, mm-hmm. her role, mm-hmm. one of Don's mistresses, whatever, like yeah. is to, um, to do the psychological studies and to like give the advertising agency that piece of 
you know, how do you get people to buy? But just like you said, that's, yeah. that was the dark side, right? You were like, um, you know, I have these gifts mm-hmm. and I'm going to use them to convince people to buy shit that they don't want. Mm-hmm. Don't yep. need, don't want. Yep. Which you can see was very <laughs> much against who I was in every single way. Uh, and I knew it. I knew it. I, I definitely, I think, you know, when you're 18, you're just like, whatevs. I followed my friend. You know, I, I didn't want to go to a huge college. Um, and I thought, wow, how nice it'll be to be 3000 miles away from Pittsburgh. And I kind of just let that guide me, um, for better or worse, but that's what happened. You were born here and then were adopted by a different family here. No, I'm actually Brazilian. I was born in Brazil. I'm what they call a Peace Corps baby. So a lot, my mother was the first year of Peace Corps and a lot of people who were in the Peace Corps adopted for obvious reasons um, from where they uh, visited. Some people visited many places. My mother was stationed in Brazil for a very long time, many, many years. Came back here, uh, met my dad, both social workers. They worked at a a school for boys called Auberly um, at night. And so they would go to the bar in the morning. You want to hear a funny Pittsburgh story? Oh, yeah. You may or may not remember this. Do you remember when Justin from the Shadow Lounge moved to that Luna bar? For like a second. So there's a bar in Oakland. It's so like yeah. after everything closed, he moved to this place called Luna okay. in Oakland temporarily. Yeah. And that's where my parents used to go and drink after work, which was the morning time. Yeah, yeah, I think about Jack's as like the morning a, drinking bar. Yeah. Like in the South Side. Oh, yeah. Like so for, the, at least for the medical people. was option, apparently, <laughs> back in the, you know, 70s. Luna bar. S- yeah, Justin Strong, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shadow Lounge, Justin. Yeah. Okay. Also, that was, uh, that whole site was actually a, uh, a, uh, um, amusement park. Did you know that? Luna Park. It was an amusement park, and then like a tiger ate a person, and it's closed. But that whole corner, that whole area of Oakland there where the CVS is, that was all an amusement park. Huge. Basically wow. looked like old Kennywood. It was huge. Crazy. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, I know a lot of weird Pittsburgh history. But anyway, side note. Um, it has a lot of that kind of odd history. There's even like the Instagram account, right? Yeah. Odd, Pits- what is yeah, it? odd, odd Pittsburgh. Yeah, Odd Pittsburgh or whatever. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. I love There's the, just so many the interesting bear things. cages are my favorite yeah. at the zoo. Yeah. The FDR yeah. bear cages. Oh my gosh, like 1935 so Works Progress Administration or whatever. They're like, we're going to build polar bear cages. It is so strange. And this you walk by them every time. Nobody ever thinks about them. Yeah, it's a wild, it's a wild place. It it's is. kind of like, it's got that, I mean, it has so many different influences, right? We're in, mm-hmm. we're in between everything. We're not everything. East Coast, not South, like not, mm-hmm. no, not mid, Midwest. We're not really Appalachian. We're very we're, unique, uniquely ourselves. Yeah. Which is cool because we also produce so many awesome people. That was Kahari Mosley's point. He says Pittsburgh punches above its weight. It truly does. I agree. I love him. He's a very Andy Warhol person. Uh, Rachel Carson. Mm-hmm. The, oh, the list goes crazy. On on. One that I was thinking about was Eckstein because I was looking up the reggae like studio owners that mm-hmm. Kev Reason mentioned on the podcast, mm-hmm. and when they list their influences, wow, it's the jazz greats that came from Pittsburgh. You know, Betty Davis is from here. The, the list is ridiculous. I mean, we could literally just, you could have a whole podcast just on who 
amazing is from here. Yeah. In any category. Yeah. We're pretty much, well, not pretty much. The Heinz History Center also reports that we are the most innovative city in the entire country. We invented the air brake. Westinghouse. Yeah. Literally everything you can Melon. ever need. Yeah, I mean, Andrew Polio Carnegie. vaccination. Crazy. The, um, what was the other one that blew my mind? The banana split. <laughs> no, that's up the street. That's, um, that's, uh, uh, I have the shirt. What's the name of that town? Uh, Latrobe. Latrobe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so important. Funny. That's important. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shout out Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, it's interesting because I am, so I am raised here pretty much my entire life in Wilkinsburg. I was raised there, but I am, yeah, a, a very much a Brazilian person. Yeah. I want to hear about that. The one that I was thinking of though, I, I did come to me is, is Greg Gillis. Oh Who yeah. people don't think about. Mm-mm. And I have DJs right here all the time that are just starting their careers. And I'm like, what inspired you to DJ is QRX. He's like, I heard a mashup one time and it just blew my mind. He was like, I was playing DJ hero and I heard the, my first mashup and I'm like, you know, Greg Gillis is from here. He lives right up the street. Like he goes to the shows of the gold market. He's like, who's that? It's like, he, he basically invented the mashup. Like he was the first person that was making mashups and he's from Pittsburgh. Like he reps Pittsburgh. He'll never leave. And this is his whole thing. It's, it's so wild how it's just, it's right under the surface, that right kind under. of like, um, that history, that mm-hmm. inspiration, that mm-hmm. kind of, um, whatever. So mm-hmm. what, what do you mean when you say that you're truly Brazilian? Uh, I just mean, I think it's kind of, um, been a process for me to navigate who I am when you, you know, adoption is a very, uh, taboo subject. Most people don't understand it. It's absolutely a business and it's absolutely rooted in uh, war and um, oppression. I mean, ideally, kids wouldn't need adopted, right? Even if something happened to your parents, you would just go to somebody else in the family, right? Like, seems kind of like a, you know, and in worst case scenario, maybe situation. Um, but you're talking about, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars in the adoption industry. Um, in the work that I do, I'm also an artist. Uh, I am like a multimedia artist and a lot of the work that I do, uh, if not all of it is about identity, which is also why I study psychology, (laughs) but, um, it is, yeah, it's a very violent industry. Um, and it's, I have this advertisement and I had in one of my art shows actually where they they talked about how expensive babies were based on their race. And it would say, you know, it was a letter that my parents, so my parents had this like huge um, folder of like everything adopted basically. So it was, I didn't look at it till well after my mother had passed away in like 2018. And when I opened it, it was like this history of my life, this like story of my life before I knew. And also ads letters, doctor's visits, like just like everything you could imagine. Right. And there's literal paperwork in there. That's like, if you want a white baby, it's going to take the longest. Um, and it's the most expensive option. If you want, uh, a mixed baby, I think they said biracial baby, it's less expensive. And if you want a black baby, it is faster and the cheapest option. And it's very clear. Um, and uh, I think I already knew all of this information, Yeah. but I think just like 
seeing all of this stuff like right there and everything has my name on it and it's like or my parents name and it's just it's it's a lot to sit with yeah yeah i mean i i don't know why i always go to the comedy but i i'm thinking about um I'm thinking about sasha baron cohen easier yeah sasha, sasha baron cohen's um uh bruno uh, you know, with the adopted, uh, mm-hmm. you know, black baby that he I takes remember. on the game show. Yeah. Um, well, now it's like the game show is like Instagram, right? It's like, it's like all of these white parents who take their kids on Instagram and they're like, here's this baby. And they're very much, there's a lot, there's a whole world of adoptees fighting this kind of stuff on Instagram currently. So, oh, wow. Like mm-hmm. basically saying I kind of, I should never have been uprooted from my environment. I should never have been uprooted from my environment. Um, And I mean, I think the argument is, uh, well, and also there's a lot of adoptees who feel differently, Um, not vastly differently, but differently in the sense of, you know, the question is always like, do you just not believe in adoption? And I think that's just like a loaded question that's meant to be a trap. It's, it's not about whether you believe in something or not. Like I believe in lots of things that are not the truth, right. Or that are not the reality of the world. Um, but I think that, so there's this, like you, this ideal utopia, which we all have to keep space in our minds for, so we can create what we desire. But then there's like the very reality of like, these are the systems now. And like, these kids are in the system now and like, they're going to go to places. So if that's the case, how can we really focus also on where they're going and what are the requirements, if you will, of um, the people that they're going to? Um, also, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, when you're talking about like intense, you know, war and the violence in the world, that's what's happening to these kids, right? There's a level of assimilation. So in America, um, you probably remember this was just like a few years ago maybe not even it came out in Canada and then it was also like connected to the Americas, but you know how indigenous kids, they found many of those graves. Right. So like, yeah, this is the something schools. What are they yeah. called? Oh my gosh. Uh, work me. schools or, Oh, well they're, 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 so they're, they're education schools or, you well, know, they're basically assimilation. Schools. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're basically like, it, we're yeah. going to rip you from your family. And then we basically make you white, right? You are going to have a new name. Yep. You're going to live your life in a completely different way. And it's, it's actually like a form. Um, it fits technically under a form of genocide, right? That's right. So that's right. What Get it rid is. of the like native culture. Yeah. I mean, it's cultural. Um, what's the word? Well, it's erasure. Cultural it's a, exactly, erasure. Basically. Erasure. Yeah, exactly. It's you're erasure. not actually killing people, but you're erasing. Well, they did. The, they did kill them. Well, they found <laughs> those mass they graves, found and, the graves yeah. and then, um, and then of course they were there because their parents were. Um, murdered and, uh, imprisoned and among other things. Right. So I think it's important to think about like, where are these kids coming from and how do we even get to this point? And I think that's why people are afraid of adoptees and have worked so hard historically to keep us quiet because we're ready to talk about anything. We're ready to go there. We know what happens. We symbolize like our very beings, symbolize everything that is wrong in the world. Whoa. And I think it's um it's a lot to carry, but it's also uh extremely powerful and important. 
Um, but yeah, that's sort of like mass. Um, so if you can think about like a school doing something like that and that sort of assimilation, the same thing often happens when kids are adopted from all over the world, right, into somebody's home. Um, and oftentimes these kids of color, right, whether they're Chinese, whether they're black, whether they're Brazilian, wherever, right, wherever they're from, get adopted into white supremacist families, into cultures. Um, they also, they can be adopted into enslavement. Um, that was the part I was trying to, pieces, that's the, yeah. that was the part I was thinking. I'm like, last time I had a comment, it was comedy. This time it's the opposite, <laughs> which is like, what about just straight up? trafficking oh right? it's a hundred percent this is, this yeah, is happening for sure absolutely. i mean there's no way to filter that out completely nope. and no and in so, fact i would say that it's the majority of the situation is some level of trafficking absolutely because the the a lot of it i think we have this idea of adopt you have this the idea painted in our head of like these wonderful people who are doing this wonderful thing yeah. um and actually it's quite violent and i think that's what kind of led me in a lot of ways to psychology because there, when I was growing up, I, you know, I was, I was considered one of the sort of like lucky ones, if you will. Like my parents were, I obviously not, not trafficking me or yeah. harming me in that way. Um, they were both activists. They were both very involved in, you know, they were on the right side of pretty much everything. So, I had a lot of freedom. I had a lot of books. I, uh, I was very encouraged to learn about the world. Um, both my parents are brilliant people. They, you could talk to them about anything in the world at any time and they would be able to carry a very intelligent conversation, um, about history, politics, past, present, and probably future about anywhere in the world. So I was very, um, I'm grateful that that was, um, my experience. However, uh, I, I was, you know, still completely ripped away from any piece of my identity um, and who I am and a lot of other, uh, you know, like I will never know who my birth parents are. Um, I, I visited Brazil in 2018 and it was extremely, it was excruciating. I didn't know what to do with that experience, you know, even though I went to like the very place that I was like born and that all of my like genetic material is from. And, um, it was a wonderful experience, but it was, it was also very heartbreaking experience, you know, to realize how much you lose, you know? Um, so I think those are the conversations that a lot of adoptees are trying to have. Like, if you're going to do this, then what gives you the right? Um, do you speak this language? Are you willing to, do you have the money and are willing to, um, uh, make sure that the kids are connected to who they are so they don't lose pieces of themselves. Um, whatever it is, there's lots of different pieces to the puzzle, but it's intense. And so it's intense. And I think I've realized my entire life because of that, because of that being who I am, that every part of life is, is quite intense. And, um, it's probably why I was dancing a lot, trying to yeah. alleviate some of the, uh, intensity that follows me around everywhere I go. <laughs> For sure. But yeah, it's very um, complicated. And it's, it's, of course, it's tied to, um, you know, politics in any, any particular part of the world at any given time, which is how we get a lot of these influx of children into any, you know, whether it's Europe or America or wherever. Yeah, so. there, there's this, I mean, I'm not an expert by any means on what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, but I think there's also something there with like yeah, totally. Russia had taken some tens of thousands of Ukrainian kids. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, it's, it's mm -hmm. a mess. I guess like if you're going to adopt a kid from somewhere, 
you have to think about what's being lost and not just what you have to offer the kid, but like what you have to learn about them, Mm -hmm. their, you know, like their racial background and cultural everything. Yeah. And I think there's also a conversation of like, if you have hundreds of thousands of dollars, which to do something like that, like a lot of these children, they do know where their parents are. Whoa. They, they live, they know where they live. A lot of these, um, war torn countries in different spaces are told, bring your kid here because we know now you have nothing. So we'll take them. And a lot of parents are like, well, I don't know what to do. Like, like, I don't know what's going to happen here, you know, and they feel like it might be the best choice. So a lot of these people are pushed into these positions and that's the other thing. So it's like, uh, you know, it's like, if you have the money too, it's like, why are you, why do you need to take someone's child instead of just like also give, give somebody money to, money to like better their own life? So there's a lot of layers to it that are really about, um, our social capital and, and how a lot of it is just like, we just want to be seen a certain way and we will do just about anything and create so much cognitive dissonance just to be seen as a a good person when in fact, um, behind the scenes, not only are we, you know, often very selfish, um, but ignorant, you know, we don't have the information, we don't do the work, we don't read the books. And, um, there's a lot of this, uh, expectation of just like, I just deserve, I just get whatever, because I, I just should have this. And I think, um, that kind of fuels a lot of the evil things that happen all over the world. So it's a, it's a cyclical thing, right. That we experience. And and that kind of led me to this place of like, I need to understand this. Like I need to understand what makes people like this in a large scale in terms of like extremely violent people. But, but for me, you know, I also really deeply wanted to understand like, how does this look in a, in our day-to-day life, you know, like with my aunts who say like, you know, super racist stuff, but then we'll be like, but I voted for Obama. So like, I'm, it's cool. Right. And I'm like, I, you know, you never treated me the same as you treated my white cousins. And I know that, but you will never admit it. You will never see it. But then I'm like sort of the bad guy for never engaging with them later in life. Right. Mm. Um, And so it's this game that we play. And so I was always like very fascinated at alleviating other people's pain. So I thought about it like that. So like, okay, here, I've had this experience. How do I learn and understand and find the tools to help other people in similar positions, whether they're like biracial, whether they're multiracial, whether they're in a, um, an interracial relationship, family, et cetera, adoption, right? Any sort of situation like that. Like, what do you need to know to find joy and figure out who you are disconnected from those expectations. So I think that's been my life's work and it's taken many forms, but in my mind, even though I do many different things, it's all the same thing to me, whether it's like psychology work, history work, being on a podcast, doing, um, whatever, right. Like you know, starting a business, yeah. being an activist, right. To me, it's all the exact same work. There's no separation in my mind. Healing, healing the community, healing the world. Tikkun olam, we would say. <sighs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. I wonder a lot in my life now, like, is it even a thing? 
like healing, you know, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, are we just kind of moving? Is it a thing that we can get to? I think a lot of people believe that it is. Um, I don't know if I'm totally convinced. I, but I do think that there are things that we can do in regardless of what the truth is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think a lot of it is that we don't know, right? We don't know a lot and we want to know so badly. Um, I think people are don't. capable of, of change. You know, I think that, that really it's possible. I, I mm-hmm. know it's possible because I was terrible. I mean, I was like, <laughs> a, like just a, not a good person, you know, as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think I'm like that anymore. I don't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. So what do you think was like the moment for you where you were like, now I'm asking the questions, right? But going to Catholic like school. my therapy hat went on. I'm like, what do you think was the moment for you <laughs> where it, it switched when I went to Catholic school and I was surrounded by other high achieving kids, other mm. kids that were all, there's hundred percent of them were going to four year colleges. Mm. And, you know, I wasn't in my like hippie art school, um, you know, drugs and whatever thing, mm-hmm. high school situation I was in. So it was, you know, it was complete night and day, but that wasn't, that wasn't like everything was fixed. It was just like a pivot towards wanting to achieve. Mm-hmm. And once I got that piece, then you know, I made some mistakes in college and had a lot of kind of, I think, relationships that I, I am not proud of, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of deal. Um, I'm trying to think how I fix that. I started thinking about how much it hurt me every time I like shared a piece of my own self in, Mm. in like sexual relationships. Oh, wow. And how Mm -hmm. like, so like a vulnerability thing. Yeah, yeah, I switched. Like where I was like, like, it's not like Shomer Nagia type where you're like completely like don't touch me. Everything mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. any kind of energy exchange is like this huge uh, loss. It, it, it's in a way right. Like mm-hmm. every, every like every kind of contact you have is an energy exchange. Yeah, totally. But some are bigger than others. Absolutely. And, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I just started thinking about it. I think like that. I was like, mm-hmm. not and you know yeah i think that was the main thing it can be chopped up to like who you are (laughs) like who you you actually were or do you think it's something that looks more like just i just matured yeah no i think i've always been a good person like deep Mm -hmm. down inside i always wanted to be like that Mm -hmm. you know saint michael archetype that my mom wanted for me mm-hmm. and like who wanted to be an upright you know be like a responsible person somebody mm-hmm. who took you know took charge of situations and like um you know did did the right thing and helped other people didn't just think about myself um but i just wasn't acting like it for a long time i always had this idea like you're, you know, once your branches are big enough, like once your roots are deep enough, then you, mm-hmm. you can withstand the storm. And like, so you, you just need to like get to where you're going and then you'll be able to help other people. Right. I think that thing is, is, is not really the way to think about it. Life is truly yeah, a I journey. Agree. You know, I was trying to tell my kid mm-hmm. that today we were driving to swim class and he's like screaming, like, when do we get there? When do we get there? I'm like, we're there, baby. Like, this is it. This is, this it. is life. man. 100%. life is what occurs between your, in, in between your origin and your mm-hmm. destination. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that perspective. And I think that's totally true. Yeah. We're just, it's just, here we are. (laughs) Here we are. 
and we have an opportunity to do with that what we will. Um, we have an opportunity to use all of these sort of cognitive bias that we come up with and try to, you know, create these extraordinary, you know, somersaults in our head and just try to like, you know, validate our own experience, I guess. But, you know, or we could just read and grow and learn and be in it and do the hard things and have the hard conversations. And it's, it's really just a choice. It's just a choice that we make, um, every day. And I, 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 I have a lot of young people, particularly a lot of young men, I think who can relate to that feeling that you just sort of described as you were sort of growing up. And, you know, I do, you know, and I think they, they can carry a lot of sort of like internalized guilt and shame as you get older. And a lot of the conversation is like that, like you don't have to take these things with you. You don't have to take anything with you at all. Like nothing, if you don't want to, you can, you can, you can move forward in any direction that you choose and you might not know something and it's okay. Then pick up a book and you'll know something like you can change who you are and your perspective at any given time. I think what, what feels so harmful about the world and has certainly felt harmful to me as a, as an adoptee and just an activist, I guess in general has been just the observe observing of people who don't do that work, who don't like, who have that block. And I think that is what led me to psychology was like, I need to understand that block. What is stopping you from seeing me as a human? What is stopping you from allowing yourself to grow instead of like, just be like, this is who I am. And this is just the way it is. And this is, you know, cause so much of the pain that people come into my office with is because they were raised in an environment that is that was stagnant. That was very stagnant. It was just like, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is what we believe. And that's the end of it. There's no room. If you invite any sort of other idea, how dare you? You're ruining the family. You're a rabble rouser. You're this, you're that, right? It's like, there's just so much fear to be who you are and to be honest with yourself. And so I just, I really wanted to create an environment and a space and a place that people know people are trained to do this kind of work and, and not, and being a therapist is not enough training to do the kind of work that I do at all. Um, the work that I do is extremely multidisciplinary. And I think that's what makes a good professional, right? Whether, whether, whatever kind of professional it is, you know, but particularly in, in our fields, like in healing fields are people that have a broader goal, a broader interest, um, that want to do the work, that want to learn, that are like, who are you? Oh my gosh, I don't actually know anything about that. Let me, let me not just you tell me everything and I'm done, but let me go learn about that. Let me go get that information. And I think that is what changes us. What changes us, the whole corny, like knowledge is power, but it, it is like, it actually is. And it, it makes you feel when people leave my space, I, I, I want them these are marginalized groups of people. These are people who, even if they're not marginalized, like even if it's like, here's a white man sitting in my office, I want him to leave still feeling empowered to actually do something good for someone else, you know? And we do that through the way that we see ourselves, right? It starts with the way we see ourselves first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, 
there's probably, you know, s- some white men that are more marginalized than others. Uh, mm-hmm. Harvey Milks, uh, yeah. or uh, maybe it, there's absolutely layers uh, facing, and intersections. Yeah. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. what did uh, uh, what does your practice look like? So, how do you like how do you see therapy, and and yeah. what like what have you built here? So, I study liberation psychology. That's the root of that's what it's called, liberation psychology. It's actually rooted in. I, I was I was very driven towards it. And then after I started learning about it, I realized that it's actually rooted in Brazilian teachings. A lot of it is rooted in, um, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of like perfect for someone like me or anyone who is socially, um, social justice sort of focused because liberation psychology is, is psychology for the people, I guess, if you will. Right. It's like, you don't just, sort of take these broader concepts and try to apply them to everyone blankly. But you have this very deep understanding of the world and its systems and how those systems impact people, um, both locally and abroad, and what that looks like uh, in terms of people's suffering. So we don't pathologize in the same way. We don't think about people as ill. We think of the society as being ill and therefore producing unwell people, you know, this sort of concept that like everyone, like, you know, you call into work and you're like, I'm sick. And you're like, you're not sick. You just want to play with your kids. And it's like, we're not actually faking sick. We're all faking well. And I think that that is sort of like the root of a lot of the work that I do is, is very much rooted in the liberation of all people. And so what does this work look like? If that is the, the goal, um, it's rooted in, um, Paulo Fieri's, uh, pedagogy of the oppressed among many other, um, important writers that talk a lot about, um, capitalism and, uh, colonialism and decolonial theory and how to apply all of that sort of liberation work to psychology. I love it. I love the idea of the environment being the culprit yeah. and the individual being capable of uh, freedom or, or freedom from disease or maybe like well, I'm being sure it looks inherently for good. You too, being inherently like, good. You're de- yeah, being inherently good. Absolutely. Being inherently healthy, being yes. inherently mm-hmm. like well. Yes, I love and, that. Yeah. And exactly. that there's these forces that are conspiring to make us sick. And mm-hmm. I would say, you know, uh, there's many, but I think the ones that I think about the most are things like the American medical system, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> basically, and big pharma, big food. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And then even the work environment in America, yeah. the ones that have killed me lately are this kind of like, and man, I've said a lot of nice things about this company on, on the podcast, so I'm not actually going to name them, but they recently did this oh, you are kind. post on Instagram where it was like, here's a day in the life of one of our employees. He wakes up in the morning and he smiles because he's about to have the best day ever. And he walks into the office and man, most of the day he's just hanging out with his buddies playing foosball on the foosball table. Then he gets to go home at four o'clock. And it's like the whole thing is about just how amazing it is to work for this company. And I'm like, you guys are keeping all the profit. What the fuck are you talking about? Literally. This is like, okay, he makes $200,000, but like that just means that you could have paid him $500,000 and you wanted the other 300. Like, yes. it's not that dope to yes. like, like, what are you doing? And then the other one that kills me is we, we love to eat at the Texas Roadhouse. <laughs> we all have our places like that though. We all have our places. No shame. We all have our they spots. They let my kids scream and like, whatever. They have like a good kids menu, whatever. I'm a parent, I'm a parent man. I got to like survive. Well, I'm going to have to try. I'm going to have to try now. <laughs> I have to survive. Like, mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> they they make their employees or at least one of the main choices for the employees is this shirt 
and the back of it is in big block letters. I love my job. It's like interesting. Wow. That's intense. Kind of. It's really intense. And to me, it's like, Mm. you might like there are many people there who might love their jobs but do you, what percentage of them do you think that wear that that ridiculous shirt actually believe it it's just yeah. so crooked to me mm-hmm. it's this well idea. and it's rooted also in this like you don't even know like people don't even know their options like when people like they don't know like they have no idea what the options are yeah you know and it's like okay maybe you love this but I'll bet if you knew what was going on down there, you might be like, I'm pretty sure that I should get more money. I mean, I think it's really interesting, like the history of um, the service industry and this concept of tipping is completely rooted in racism. Whoa. It's um, <clears throat> actually during the Jim Crow era after they so-called like, you know, freed enslaved people, um, which never really happened. They just sent them to prison and found other ways to create the same environment. But during that, what happened was that they, um, the, the railroad operators didn't want to pay black people, even though now they were supposed to. So they created this system where it was, where where they knew these black people weren't going to be able to find jobs. So they were like, well, you can come work here on the railroad, but, um, we're not going to pay you, but you can tip them. So the drivers could tip them if they wanted to. So maybe you would end the day with some money or maybe not. Um, And that's sort of this concept of tipping is very much rooted in this, um, this idea. And then of course, who's making the money? Who's literally has employees they don't have to pay for. It's crazy. $3 an hour. I mean, what, what there's probably a lot in Pittsburgh. You can probably still pay somebody three, $4 an hour. (laughs) Barely. Literally psychotic. And um, they don't do Mm. it in Europe. You know, don't mm-hmm. do that. What are you talking about? You bring your European friends here and explain to them how tipping works in the U.S. and just watch their eyes just bulge yeah, out of like, head. The what? Germans are just like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. pay them, pay them. Yeah, except then wage. you should still tip because a lot of them will come here and go to restaurants and then uh, not tip because we don't do that. And that's silly without realizing, well, that's still how these people are making money. And that's still the very much reality. You know, it, I think about that a lot. Like uh, the what people are making in these like trendy, you know, in these trendy communities and these restaurants and somebody who's working just as hard to, at, I don't know, Eaton Park. There was a, an, another uh, venue that I plug here all the time that mm-hmm. I always say amazing things about that I will also not name that was advertising a position recently on Instagram as well for like $10, $15 an hour. Like very like happy to advertise, just like so happy. Yes, I know. They're so proud. People are so proud of themselves. And I'm like, what are you actually proud of? You know, it's like, well, and then it's like, well, you know, small businesses. And I'm like, you know what? Sometimes we just shouldn't be in business. Sometimes we don't get the right to just do stuff and exploit other people so we can make our dreams come true. But I think that that right there is like a part of that. Again, we're going back into that. Like, what is the psychology that you have right? Not just like using words like privilege and this and that, but like, what does that mean? Why do you actually think that you get to just do stuff? You know, maybe you don't get to do stuff yet until you can figure out how to get people paid, right? Or maybe you need to do some of that work on the back end and figure out how to advocate simultaneously or work together with people or offer other you know, whatever connection, you know, like whether it's like a lot of businesses are doing those like business, they're like business owned businesses, which I really appreciate, Mm. you know, where like they're, 
it could be like a um, like a co-op maybe yeah sort of like a co-op and then but even like going even further where it's like um like here we sell it's like where they say like worker owned you know Mm -hmm. it's like it's not just a co-op it's like straight up workers yeah own a collective parts of this business there's not like a yeah, no hierarchy. Yeah. And that's like, and that's, it's just like, and I think that that's the thing, right? It's like people have to sit with like, why am I really doing this? Why am I really doing this thing? And if it's benefiting me more than it's benefiting the people who are doing all of the work um, or significantly more um, work or even equal amounts of work, then I need to sit and think about how I value work and why do I really believe that, um, that like $10 an hour under any circumstance in this country is okay. Cause it's like literally never okay ever. It's completely unethical. Um, and we could have arguments with lots of small business owners. And I say this as a small business owner, I've been a small business owner for 15 years or something like that. So 10, 10, 14 years or something like that. So wow. like, I'm like, look, come at me. I I'm doing the same work. Like I walk in the walk. Yeah. yeah. But right. I'm not going to do it if I can't do it. I'm going to figure out, like, what do I need? How much money do I need in the bank? What kind of other loan do I need to take out? What do I need to do so that I can make sure that the people who are working with me are paid fairly? Yeah. Yeah, uh, totally. So mm-hmm. what is the business? And, and, and can we talk a little bit about some of the tools that you use? We should mm-hmm. also provide a disclaimer about hallucinogens, probably. Oh. <laughs> I didn't really talk about that at all. But, like, that's, this is really strong medicine. And so you, you need to, like be careful with these compounds. They're, they're powerful and, um, you should have a guide if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also, we don't sell them. I don't recommend <laughs> anything to anyone. Like, I don't think this is the right path for you. Um, by any means it's, it has to be like something you, yeah. Anyway, everybody is like listening right now and they're like, what are they about to talk about? <laughs> oh, somebody tested psilocybin against Lexapro. Mm. in a double blind placebo controlled trial which nice. is nice and it was 70% uh response mm-hmm. in the psilocybin group and less than 50% for the SSRIs so mm-hmm. uh, psilocybin is basically for serotonin yeah it's a 5-HT2A well yes thank you for that cuz i'm not going to take it like that far like all of the like <laughs> all the i think classic or uh, I forget what they're called. Classic hallucinogens, I think, or 5-HT2A. So mm-hmm. LSD, yeah, 2A. Yep, that's what they are. psilocybin, mm-hmm. um, and DMT mm-hmm. are like those, like the three. Yeah, there's a lot of things that the people classify as psychedelics that are not necessarily like traditionally the way that we think of them. But so I mostly work in the psilocybin community, but that's that's a small part of what I do. So let me let me create the let me create the the. Let me tell the story, I suppose. <laughs> um, I am known as the trippy therapist. That's sort of like the joke. A, um, a little bit about me that I think is important is that I am, um, if you are listening to this and you can't see me, I am a black person. <laughs> Earlier, um, I talked about how I grew up in Wilkinsburg, which is a, uh, a, a historically considered like in the early 1900s, it was the well, it was actually like one of the wealthiest communities in the entire country. Um, the, uh, Smithsonian museum called it the trendiest place to live in the entire United States in like 1900. Um, as you know, there was a lot of money in Pittsburgh for various reasons. And, um, this community, uh, home to, um, 
lots of different communities, lots of different people, a very diverse place to live when my parents had moved there in the seventies after they got married, after knowing each other for like five minutes. Um, but then slowly changed, right? We started to see gentrification. This was in the era of Reagan. We started to see the war on drugs. All of this kind of happened. The community, all, all of the homes, people, you know, I mean, just everything was just, I, I didn't understand it at the time. I was very young. So I just saw this community falling apart, basically. People moving out, homes becoming abandoned. People were just gone. Um, people, the, the RICO act happened, right. Which was how they were using it to like literally take anyone or anyone they wanted basically. Uh, and they did, and they put them in prison and some of those people are still there. Um, side, interesting side note that again is if you're from Pittsburgh, you can just, we have this joke where everything in Pittsburgh is like, like what is it? like less than one degree. It's like 0. 0.00000 degree of separation from everything. Right. Which is how we somehow know each other so well and then don't, but like, it's like, it's just because everybody is so close, yeah. but so the RICO act happened, everybody's getting arrested. You know, um, my community was like all of a sudden, like there was just like no black men anywhere. They were just like all locked up. It was a terrifying experience for me. My father at the time, he worked at Westinghouse high school, which is actually the neighborhood over in Homewood. Um, and I was just kind of, both my parents are white, but I very much experienced them coming home, very distressed, you know, just, just very like engaged in just what was happening in the, you know, eighties and nineties. So, um, I was always very afraid of drugs. My husband still laughs at me because I use that word. He's like, stop calling it drugs. And I'm like drugs. <laughs> but like, Growing up, I had this deep fear. So, like, all my friends were partying. All my white friends were partying, doing, like, popping pills. It was, like, rave scene, right? Everybody was on E. It was, it was like, that. there was, like, those people. And then on the other side of it were, like, people just, like, hanging out, smoking weed or something. But I was, like, I don't do any of that. I am not that kind of person. And it wasn't even, like, I was, like, attempting to be, like, judgmental. I was just terrified. I was, like, I'm going to die or go to jail. I can't let that happen. So I'm just going to convince myself that I am just not a certain kind of person because that was the only way I could navigate it. And then I also had so many people dying around me, right? Um, uh, so when I was a teenager, I worked with someone named Darby, Darby Kagan Shields and Michael Tanzer. And uh, Michael Tanzer was my Jewish friend from Squirrel Hill and um, Darby, all, he was like, he Michael was like a total punk at the time. He's very different now. He like, it's like a multi, I don't know. He's making tons of money. He lives in California and he's um, in the weed business and he's still a wonderful human being. Darby, I don't know. He kind of disappeared. He lives in New York, but he was this very cool artist who was also living in Squirrel Hill. So these were two of my closest friends, my best friend. They were my best friends. And we started something called Red Tape uh, Design. Red tape was, um, initially it was just called red tape and it was, um, we threw parties, we threw parties that were all about education. So we would throw these huge, amazing parties with like tons of famous DJs, tons of famous, you know, musicians. And it was free. It was always free with the exception that we had tables and you had to like engage in the table. So it might be like food, not bombs or right. Like all of these different community organizations that were doing really important work, um, 
in, in terms of like changing the world. And so people would engage in them and then they would come to our parties and we would have tons of fun and we would have hip hop parties and we would have, but we were basically like, this is one of the reasons why I know so many people much older than me in the music scene that we know similarly is because I was very, my father was a record collector. All, a lot of the DJs would come to my house to like buy things or, um, and like Selecta, I, it was like, I would drive him around when I was underage to, uh, it was my job. I would like go drive him around and then I could go to any party I wanted uh, underage and have fun. So that's what you, I was like. You were Selecta's chauffeur. Yes, literally. Wow. Yeah. This is dope. Mm-hmm. See, now we're getting somewhere. It's interesting because there's always a connection, right? To like community and music, right? There yeah. always is. There's yeah. no matter what we try to do, there's always a connection. So we did that for many years. It was, ex- it was amazing. We were, and we registered tens of thousands of, of young people to vote. We did incredible work. And then eventually we all were like, I guess we're going to college. I actually don't, Mike Tanzer didn't go to college. Um, but eventually he moved away and everybody moved away. We all moved away. So it kind of fell down. But before that happened, um, you may or may not remember red. So red tape, um, red tape, as we know it, red tape productions turned into red tape design, which was actually the original people who started working with Mac Miller and Wiz Khalifa. We were the original designers of their artwork um, and all of their mixtape. For Rostrum. Yeah. Chad was Chad Glick. Well, or? none of them actually had anything to do with it. That that was like Artie whatever Burns, their recording Burns, stuff Chad was. Glick, yeah, Eden. Yeah, but we were doing all of their art. Wow, um, all of their art. Huh. So, just side note. So that's us. So when you look at um, Prince all of the of City, like the earliest mixtape. Yeah, they're all us. Amazing. So it kind of like moved into that, and then. Kids? I kind of kept kid, moving. Kids, kids mixed Kids, in? yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. So I cool. kind of like moved into that direction. I kept moving in that direction and they kind of like, uh, well, Darby kind of fell off and then Mike, he still does a lot of work in terms of um, uh, whether it's psychedelics, medicine, um, you know, just uh, cannabis, everything. He's just, he's still very much involved in uh, making healing accessible in those ways. Um, but yeah, so we went in different directions, but that was like very much a huge influence. And so, um, started off like doing that. And then, um, but the point of that whole story is that I, I was like this good, clean kid. I have this memory of like passing out flyers at club Laga. Do you remember that place? Yeah, I know Laga. I don't know that I've ever partied there, but like I used to go after it got converted to Mm. high rent uh, apartments for my friends in the Whoa. Jewish sorority. I have not actually like ever been when there I was in college. Yeah. I can't even like imagine like that would have been so crazy. I had the most wild experience of my life in those places. Oh, like, wow. I saw everybody right there on stage and right this close to me, like yeah. literally every hip hop act you can imagine like this close to me, Erica Badu or like right here in my face. Like yeah. it was phenomenal and I was underage for all of it. But I remember like going to like these raves because that was like the thing that everybody was doing. And I was like, oh gosh, yeah. You know, like I remember that. I was in high school and I was just like, oh, these people. And I, I realized like psychologically, I was just detaching myself because there was so much death. I lost a lot of people in high school. A lot. Not only did we lose a lot of people in high school, but we we had a lot of kids addicted to lots of stuff. Um, breaking. I remember Darby's house was broken into. Somebody that we knew stole. That came in his house, stole all his computers. Like just like you know, it was just like a very tough time, and I was terrified um, for my own safety and the safety of others. So I was just like, ah, I don't know. 
know. So it's it's kind of funny that I'm on this podcast with you because I imagine that the people who you know are also people who are like Liana trippy. <laughs> Liana is not trippy. Like she's cool, but she's not trippy. Like that is not who she is. And I so that's kind of like the point of the backstory was like she is not that person. She's the one I remember being like, yeah. who are you? And so <laughs> the question becomes, how did I get so trippy? Yes. And it's because I tripped. <laughs> it sounds like um uh quest um what's his name john quest oh yeah his, we're really good story. friends yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah i went and took his yoga class the other day nice um but i want to hear uh yours i, didn't, I haven't gotten well, we hear actually have similar yet, stories what kind of uh, motivated both of us was the death of our mothers Whoa! and actually when you do a lot of interviews with people who explore psilocybin particularly you there's a lot of connections to like losing a parent And how that sort of like creates this space where you're like, I'm never going to come back from this. I need help. And that is kind of a way in. So that's what happened to me. I lost my mom. I lost my mom. My birthday happens to fall like either on or right around Mother's Day, which is always just torture. And my husband is, he'll never admit this, but he is who I also met at the Shadow Lounge. We can talk about that later, but he is... uh, He's a healer and he's a shaman. I will call him that. He will never call himself these things, but he's, he just is so good with people and like creating like safe spaces. But anyway, after we were probably together like eight or nine years or something. And I, I was maybe less seven or eight. And I was like, I, I, all that time. And I was still like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. And he's like, just do it. So I did. So I used to be a chain smoker. The oh, first yeah. time I ever did this, I never smoked again. I still have never smoked again in my life. And I mean, I was a chain smoker. Both my parents were chain smokers. Yeah, yeah. My dad still is. My mom died of cancer. I remember the first time I picked up my mom's cigarette and like ran outside and what I was wearing because I, because it was, it's like burned into my head because I looked like a child. Yeah. I had like a black oversized t-shirt with a sunflower on it and yeah. like sunflower dress, like skirt. And I remember that because I'm like, oh my God, I was a baby. Yeah. But anyway, I never smoked again after that experience. And it wasn't, Wild. it wasn't an intention, nothing. It just never happened. And I never, I still haven't done it since, nor do I even think about it. It's not something I struggle with. And I, I was like, I told my husband, what just happened? What just happened? How am I? I just felt like a completely different person. I said, I am going to give every black person. <laughs> So that is my goal, right? All of us that are afraid, like we don't do that. We might go to jail or like whatever, like that's just for white people or like all these ideas that people have about these things, like socially because of the way the war on drugs like affected us. Like, no, we have to do this. And I was like, we're going to do it. So at that moment when we were walking around seven Springs, right in the very, very beginning of COVID and everyone's dead, I said, we had this kind of conversation about how we want to create a space that's safe for people to do this kind of healing work. And here we are many, many years later, and um, I run what's called the trippy therapist. So I'm actually a regular therapist who does regular therapist things. And um, if you're a therapist who's into any of this, also, I am hiring. So please uh, holler. We, we don't accept insurance, which is a whole nother thing that we can talk about. But um, so it's, it's a very, it's a much more free sort of decolonized way to think about work, uh, the work that you do in your healing work, right. And keeping it private and all kinds of other amazing reasons why we do things the way that we do them. But 
um, part of what we do is called integration. So integration work, um, which is if you've heard of things like set setting, right. All of that, like we know that everything down to like how long your eyes are closed to how long your eyes are open during, you know, to what kind of music you're listening to. It all affects how psilocybin specifically is going to work moving forward. So we, I focus a lot on integration. So because this is sadly still considered an illegal substance, um, in most of this country decriminalized in some spaces, but schedule one, yeah, still, still, right. Um, which is, which is the criminal part, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so we don't provide any of that, but we absolutely provide the services, um, to help you actually create a healing experience and a therapeutic experience, um, for yourself during, after, um, and in the future, which is, which is what is known as integration work. Amazing. The, um, the question I would ask, and it's sort of rhetorical is how could we allow this type of medicine, this powerful of a drug to Mm -hmm. be legal if it works at, with one dose when we're trying, we being the American medical establishment mm-hmm. are trying to sell Chantix. Yeah. Oh, totally. Well, that's why they're to not. sell SSRIs or trying to sell so a drug. it took so long for cannabis to get to the point that it did too, because they need to figure out how to make the same amount of money. They're like, we need to still figure out how we can get as rich off of this. Is that microdosing? Well, how do you feel about microdosing? And is oh, that I love microdosing. Is? I love microdosing. Absolutely. I absolutely love microdosing. I think it changes people's lives. And um, a lot of the people that I work with agree. Um, my husband um, has studied uh, microdosing for quite some time. It's something that he had been doing even before, you know, had been doing, thinking about, learning about, reading about. Um, and it, I mean, it, it's, I think that people that have been doing this for, cause this is not a new thing, right. But doing it, it not in the intention of like, I'm trying to party and have a good time and, and sort of create this escapism, but people who do, who take this sort of like medicinally, you know, not just to like have a good time, but are taking things medicinally to actually create some level of healing in their body. This is, this is, this is ancient work. So this is like, this is going to happen no matter what. Right. It might be the oldest work. It might be the reason we have a frontal cortex. I think it it is. I mean, a lot of people think it was the moon goddess, right? Yeah. That that was the moon. Well, some people think we actually are just fungi ultimately, which is one of the reasons why it actually works so much better than a lot of the other ways that we also can get serotonin right in our bodies, but doesn't work as well um, or as quickly. Yeah, I know. This is meaning like, like the consciousness part the of, consci- of what we are. Like we're a, we're mm-hmm. we're definitely animals, but mm-hmm. the consciousness part is a superimposed fungal. Uh, well, it could be the consciousness part, but also like even if you take it back even further, like before we were anything, like even that far back. Oh, oh, like our, our earliest known ancestors yes. are not bacterial cells, or we're, fungi. we're not plant cells it's a it's a fungus yeah hmm. but i don't really think about that so much because it's neither here nor there for me i'm more interested <laughs> in like i'm more interested in like all right i know that uh, in psychology which is one of the reasons why i study decolonial therapy and 
liberation psychology is because most of this stuff was taken from indigenous cultures already. Right. Which we know in medicine and any of this, like this is like, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like all Blackfoot nation, right? Like everything was taken from that. He didn't hide it or it was just like very, you know, we just aren't taught these things, right? These are things that are like left out of our education. So when you start to do this kind of work and you realize like, this is who we are, this is hours. Like I try to take, I know I work within a system, which makes it easier for me to do my work, right? It makes it easier for me to get paid. It makes it easier for me to access clients, to access people. It makes it more accessible for me to get in front of people, right? To tell the truth that needs to be told, right? So, I mean, I work within the systems because I have a, I have a foot out because I know the truth and I have a foot in because this is the reality of my life. And I'm not going to just like pretend. I think there's a, there's a lot of violence in disconnecting and pretending that we aren't where we are. You know, we still are here doing this, you know? So a lot of the work that I do with the tribute therapist is really about how to create these, um, you know, when you think about psilocybin, a lot of it is like you're, the whole thing is that you're trying to create these new neuropathways. You're trying to, you know, I, the, one of the ways that I sort of think about it is that if our brain is just like covered in snow, right? We're born brains covered in snow. And then there's like, a couple of things. There's like some, this, like if you imagine like a rainfall that like kind of like, you know how it like dents the snow a little bit. That's like our ancestors. It's like, they were like, Hey, here's some like little hail, like just kind of holes. They're just like throughout your like nice little clean snow. It's just there. Might be there forever. We don't know. Then as we start to grow older and we have these thoughts and these thought patterns, right? These neural pathways, it's kind of like we drove through the snow. So our brains, they want to keep us safe. They don't really care if it's the easier or the harder way. They just, or if it's the right way or the wrong way, it just wants to keep us safe. So if the tire tracks are there, it's going to go go through the tire tracks. That's way safer. We don't know this other route. There's like too much snow there. Go through this tire track. And that tire track could say like, I hate myself. I'm such a piece of garbage. I hate myself. And it'll keep going through that because it's knows that. Right. So to create a new neural pathway that says like, I am worthy of love and care, that's a very conscious practice. It's like very hard. So that's kind of what I think about, you know, is the goal of psilocybin is creating those new neural pathways that, that hopefully just like fill in. If you're lucky enough to have that experience, like I did with the coping mechanism that I had, like I was literally probably smoking a pack or more of cigarettes a day for, since I was 15. Yeah. And and then I never did it again to even think about it. Yeah, it's that powerful. It's I mean, amazing. I think about it like shaking up a snow globe. Yeah, yeah. It's like a snow right. globe. Everything is set. Sh- yep. Like it's all there in this completely, and it'll never change mm-hmm. unless you pick that fucker up and really go to shake. Mm-hmm. And you kind of got to like reset, like hit yes. that reset button on the on the Xbox or something. Yep. Like, you know, you're like, I don't know, what was the device that used to have a little, you know what I'm talking about, the reset button where you had to take a pen and oh, really yeah, jab yeah, yeah, it yeah, in there? To, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what device I'd be make thinking stuff about. Like Maybe, that, I swear. Like a TI eighty three calculator. Would that happen? Probably that would have had one. Yes. I don't remember. Calculators were silly. That's for crazy. No I can't even. I used to do that all the time, and I can't think of a single thing that I used to do it too. <laughs> Did you see that had, meme where they were like, <laughs> they were like, remember when your teacher used to be like, you can't use your calculator because you're literally not going to be able to walk around with that for the rest of your life, and now we like all have <laughs> That's good. No, I didn't see it, but the one I saw today that blew my mind was. Um, this guy, uh, Jimmy Edgar, who talked about how we don't see our cell phones or any mm. other complex machines in dreams. 
Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, I never. And that that's the, so true. It's because when we're dreaming, we're accessing something much older. It's not. It doesn't have to do with our day to day life. It has to do with symbolism and ancient archetypes, ancient structures. And so your brain actually doesn't have the deep subconscious doesn't actually have a symbol for cell phone. I love it's that. too new. It's yeah. like a couple That's 30, so 40 interesting. years. And I mean, I talk though, about dreams a lot in my work, obviously, but I never like put that together. We spend 12 hours a day staring at this little brick. Yep. But then when you go to sleep at night, you never see a cell phone. And if you do, if you ever mm-hmm. pick up like an electronic device in a dream, it's kind of like being on acid. Like you see it with it's, just yeah. squiggles and or it's like, like lights. Yeah. It just gives you this like weird LED thing. That's not interesting. It's not legible. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I like that one a lot. Yeah. Why does it have to be, uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy rather than just psychedelia? Meaning what is the, like, it, it gets back to this conversation we were having about how there's this industry and capitalism and how everything has to be marketed versus the shaman who has had a role in society for eons, mm-hmm. maybe since the beginning of civilization, right? Absolutely. And so why, like, why can't we just give people the, the medicine rather than saying like, you know, we, you know, like all the new clinical trials are all on psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Well, think about it. When you say psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, yeah, where's the power in that lie in psychedelics or psychotherapy in the psychotherapy, right? Yeah. So that's a problem that, and, and I, 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 even though like, so I happen to be a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist, but I happen to study psychotherapy and psychology. I'm a psychotherapist. Oh my gosh, stop giving me wine. Okay. (laughs) I am a psychotherapist who studies psychology. Yes. And I, but I don't want people to think of me that way, if that makes sense. I want it to be this thing where it's like, this just happens to be like who, like what I do the confines of like how I exist in this, whatever this is. Yeah. But this is not like who I am or what I believe. I absolutely um, disagree with almost all of my colleagues. I think that the majority of therapists take the easy way out. I think that most of them are completely uneducated. I think that most of them don't have the juice of what it really means to be a full person in, in this world. I think a lot of the work that we do was meant to get people back to work. Right. And so even though there are phenomenal people doing this work, right. Wow. Like there truly are, there's incredible people doing this work, but the majority of them fall short. And, um, that was my experience. I think that's the reason why we only have, you know, what, four or 5% um, of therapists are of color, which is horrific. Um, and part of that is because most of us have been abused by systems, right? Abused by these systems. So we don't trust them. And so I think like, I literally do this for, for representation, just to be like, Hey, if you think you need something and you can't trust any of those people, just know if you're black, if you're brown, if you're an immigrant, if you're a refugee, if you're a gangster, I don't care who you are. You can call me and we won't do a damn thing on the books. That's what I want people to think of me as, right? 
I just have a platform to be able to advocate in a different way as a clinical psychotherapist that I wouldn't necessarily have as just like a person who's like, I do psychedelics, right? Because we just, we're not going to value that in the same way. And those people who are doing extremely important work, but they're not in the same rooms as I would be able to get into. Um, and the true, and there's just a lot of, it's messy, right? It's like a messy mess. There are some really amazing things happening in Pennsylvania though, that are very different than, um, other parts of the country. So other places that are trying to get the use of psilocybin, for example, for psychos, you know, to, to, for assisted therapy, they are, you know, often using synthetics and things like that. They're still working within the confines of a hospital, um, or space like that. Whereas Pennsylvania had actually been working into, um, when it's, you know, cause there's many people who are always working to get these things moving or passed, um, that we would actually be using the plant medicine and not synthetics. And then also, Good. yeah. And Good. then also, um, in Pennsylvania to be able to work outside of the space of a hospital so Good. that you could be outside, you could be in a different environment and then also figuring out ways to work with community members and what actually makes sense to create a safe space for people. So like you could be a community member and do a training, for example, um, and then work with whoever you want. And, and the client, you might say, Hey, I have like, Hey, I really want to work with Liana's husband. He's not a psychotherapist. I just want to work with him. And you do. And he, his therapist could help you out over here, but you don't have to like be like in this medical sort of like experience. So I think that's a pretty cool, amazing thing that Pittsburgh and, you know, Pennsylvania is doing differently. Um, that you don't see other states doing. I, I love that. I always think about when I walk into the hospital and I see the patient, sometimes I'll see them in the emergency room in their street clothes. Mm-hmm. And then in the morning I'll come back and round and I'll see them in the hospital gown and they look a hundred times more sick. They've become a patient. So true. When they were wearing their human <laughs> so clothes, true. when they were wearing their human outfit, they mm-hmm. just looked like a person, like another. Mm-hmm. And then we strip them of their identity and take them into this, put them in this room where we hook them up to these wires and cables. And now all of a sudden, we're in control. Yeah. It's our rules. It's yeah. our dictates. How could you ever do the type of work that you're talking about in that type of setting? Mm-hmm. I think it's only there's only one reason to do it and it's because you're trying to get money from insurance companies I completely agree there's just there's no other explanation mm-hmm. you're talking about the number of people that are practicing therapists of mm-hmm. color three four percent what what's the percentage of people seeking therapy that are of color That's so yeah so it's interesting it's interesting because so there's actually more and more and more every good. moment good so there but but there are groups that are supporting this so there are groups like um like black girl therapy there's a number of groups online that are creating these sort of like um safe spaces to go so they're cataloging so like you've probably heard of psychology today right so like every you know therapist psychologist psychiatrist you can have like a profile in psychology today that's where mm. a lot of people find their therapist. It's like, what's going to pop up when you're like looking for somebody. Um, but these other sites are creating spaces very specific for people who, um, are either looking for somebody like them or just somebody that has, um, like a decolonial theory attached to like the work that they're doing or just people who understand them. Right. Because it's like, everyone has a very different experience. This concept to me that just because you're a therapist means that you can work with people's, people's deepest, darkest psyche. Right. But you don't know anything about the experience of being Indian. 
You don't know anything about the fact that Indians have experienced genocide. You don't know anything about the, like, you don't have these understand, but you think that you should be doing that work. Like when I, so there's a, there's a Pittsburgh, like a local Pittsburgh group of therapists. It's like, it's a Facebook group that you like kind of, um, like join into. And Mm. all of these therapists are on there. I kind of just watch because I usually get torn apart whenever I jump in, but it's, it's kind of horrific to be honest with you. It is so racist and so basic. So like you, the other day I saw this comment that was like looking for an interracial relationship person. Okay. Just so you're aware. I was talking earlier about how I am like a serial entrepreneur, but I, I run and own and operate with uh, my business partner, Sydney Olberg, the Center on Interracial Relationships. I am the only person who has been doing this kind of work specifically, specifically for years. And because I created it because it didn't exist. No one was doing this work. It wasn't that no one could talk about it, but certainly not in this realm. It was, there were social justice spaces that we could have those conversations, but it was very rare. So I created this because it wasn't a thing. A couple people throw in my name. The rest of it is I'm white, but you know, here's my information or I'm married to a black man. So I'm qualified, I guess, Mm. or right. Like these kinds of like very basic, you know, my husband is Jewish or like just these, like, so now I know everything. It's just kind of like these ridiculous, like I adopted a kid from Brazil. Literally lit. Okay. Look, I, the next thing I was going to say was somebody who said I have adopted children because that's literally it. And now you all of a sudden, it's like, well, my husband's a doctor, so I'm a doctor. Like, what are you talking about? And I think that that is so sick and so, hurtful and harmful because it keeps the status quo in place. And that is what keeps everybody ill. And so I think it's a very scary, precarious thing for me to do the work that I do, because most of the people that do this work don't want people like me to be doing that work. Just like you're saying, like, why do we want, like, it's like, we don't, we don't actually really want this, right? There's many people who don't really want you to do the work the way that I'm doing it. When I went to school, they tried to kick me out. They were like, I don't think that this is for you. I don't think, you know, and I was like, have you gone on Instagram? Like, clearly not, because there are definitely people like me when you look in the worldwide, you know, stage of this work that are doing tons of decolonial therapeutic work. But they don't want that because they want to keep their own ignorance. Like, I went to school for this. Good enough. That's not good enough. You should be in the damn bookstore every other week buying a stack of books and reading them. If you think that you have the right to just work with people's emotional states, historical trauma. They all throw around this word trauma and know nothing. They know nothing. So I sort of have this, like this thing that I do in my own mind when I meet people, I'm like, do they know this, 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 and this? Because if they don't know these kinds of things, I don't even give them the time of day. I don't care if you're a professional. Right. Right. We know we didn't learn this stuff in school. Look, be honest. Tell the truth. Know, community high, community high. Howard's in People's History of America. Howard's in was my U.S. History textbook. That's pretty good. It's a good that's start. Very it's rare a good start. That's rare. It's a good where start. Did, where did that happen at school? Community high school, Ann Arbor, oh, Michigan. That's amazing. Uh, oh, I wish yeah. I could remember the name of the. Not happening perf- in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my friend. See, no. What was the teacher's name? <laughs> that's she, cool. Um, she was also my forum leader. That's so cool. Fuck, I can't remember her name. I'm sure she's she's dead. Yeah. Um, What's her name? Um, anyway, yeah, you know, the first chapter is like uh, uh, Christopher Columbus hops off the ship, oh, yeah. starts riding the natives around and slicing off their arms. It's like, 
wait a minute, like, this is not what we learned. Yeah, no, no, no. And it's so different, right? Because you're talking about this experience you had there, yeah. and we're literally watching people ban oh, sure. educational books sure. in other places. Sure. Like, it's unbelievable if, if you're just, and that's why I mean when I say I'm lucky, like, I'm lucky I grew up in a home with books. Mm. I'm lucky I grew up with access to, like, some of the best libraries in the world, right? Yeah, like, I'm amazing. lucky that this is a thing because most people, they don't even crave that information. I'm telling the audience right now. I said this to a client the other day, not even kidding you. They're, they were having a little breakup. They were like, I don't know about this person. And I was like, I'm going to be really corny because probably like every social justice person has said this, but I was like, what was on their bookshelf? And they were like, well, they didn't really have a bookshelf. They kind of just like stacked books on the floor. And I was like, okay, okay. We can, that's, that's reasonable. But, okay. <laughs> but like, what kind of books were they? And then they proceeded to tell me and I was like, oh, okay. You know, because it matters. Yeah. Like it matters like your need to, I don't care if it's a book on the ground or yeah. a podcast or um, a book on tape, right? Audio on tape, but like, you know, audible, I don't care what it is, but if you're not seeking this kind of level of information, not just for your clients, but even my friends, like if I'm having a conversation with you about who you are in your life and I love you and care for you. And I'm like, Whoa, I don't actually know anything about that. I owe it to you and to humanity to get that information. That's just wild to me that we don't think that we should have this knowledge. Like it's I think you need wild. like multiple sources too. It's yeah, to multiple me, the thing sources. That's, yes. It's like become very clear from the mm -hmm. pandemic and mm -hmm. the response and then like the um yeah. know, uh, what else? Like the wars, like mm -hmm. whether it's Ukraine or yep. Gaza, Palestine. Mm -hmm. It's like there's so much propaganda like so much. and trying to filter through what's true is not it's not something you can do in a day like no. you have to really and it's a skill it's a skill that you build right and we have to build that yeah. if we want to fight it if we want to change the world we have to understand what is happening because when you realize when you read you go oh this is textbook it's literally the same you can trace what's happening for example in Gaza Palestine to any um any other like anything like literally every single playbook mm. is the same propaganda is propaganda it works the same way yeah. no matter who we're applying it to and i think that when i studied um uh cultural studies which is which is critical theory like that's what it is that's what you learn to do like and that's the whole like liberal arts that everyone's like don't do that you're never gonna make any money <laughs> you know what okay well i figured that out but at least i'm <laughs> At least I know, right? Like, at least yeah. I know. Yeah. And, you know, I can figure out the money part later. But at least, like, I had the experience of knowing, like, really knowing the truth, you know? And I think that that is so powerful. You know, it leads me to this conversation about, well, we both have children now, which is, like, yeah, a thing that I'm curious to know from you <laughs> how that's changed your life because it that's has... Trip, man. Intensely changed. It makes you think about people as big babies, like as big grown up babies. Like, think about Hitler was like a little baby that somebody little, fed, you know, little, like put a bottle in his mouth yep. or boob in his mouth and like loved and held. And every single person that you see mm -hmm. is a grown up baby. They're just yep. like a little tiny, helpless yep. infant for mm -hmm. a full year and a half, maybe even two years, because the head of the human mammal is too you know, has to be a small enough to get out of the birth canal. Yep. And so they come out helpless. They just, they are completely useless. It's not like a deer, you know, where it just kind of Right. They just out. jump up. Yeah. No, <laughs> we yeah. don't have that. We don't have function. That. We aren't mm -hmm. like horses or 
mm-hmm. cattle. Like we have this very unique situation with our head size and brain size where mm-hmm. we just have to be completely. Just ask my little baby. He's the biggest head you've ever seen. He's just like, <laughs> hopefully you never listen to this podcast. My sweet, loving baby. I love you so much. But you had a very big head when you were a child and it was adorable because you would just try to walk and then you would just <laughs> fall. The um, yeah, yeah. So I, that's I think that's the main one is like it. Mm-hmm. It really makes me I think a little more compassionate, yeah. a little bit more Absolutely. like patient with people. And when I when I see somebody begging on the you know on the street, you know, waving a, a sign or whatever, like um, you know, it's like they aren't there because they want to be. No, this nobody is, is there. Not <laughs> any kind of a choice. Like they they had all of these layers of mm-hmm. like you said trauma or whatever like environment was put upon them that when they were little they just didn't get what they needed like and they sure didn't Mm-mm. um and so it it in one way it's like very like inspiring and when i see my kid like at the end of the day of course it's just you know it's everything it's amazing but in the other way it's kind of like well what about all the other kids that i'm not helping you know mm-hmm. it's like there's a lot of so hard a lot of people out there that could use my energy and attention and love and support and financial uh support probably you know yeah. it's like it's a there's like environmental arguments and like financial arguments against having children you know and it's like tons but the Ooh, i have something to say about that <laughs> keep going for me like <laughs> it's you know there's there's also this huge personal drive to to reproduce and pass on your genetic information and have a legacy and establish it mm-hmm. it's like you want to hear my theory about that yeah, yeah. please are you jewish Oh yeah, yeah. I figured Isaac. Yeah. I just wanted to. Make oh yeah, sure Isaac Golzer. You know. It's like plus the nose. You you just like meet me, and it's just they know right away. They so I'm going to say this because I think because as a Jewish, the reason I wanted to just say that is because well, you know, it's important to not assume things about people, but also because what I'm about to say absolutely applies to me and to you. Yeah. But my I I learned this. It changed my life because so I have a number of white, and I think this is important to say given this, the world in this current state, not. Um, I think like when we talk about whiteness, it's really important, right? Because a lot of people could be white, right? It's kind of like a, a, a mindset more, you know, obviously it's like you're who you it's, are. It's right? like the white. Like there white. are Jewish people who are white and there are Jewish people who are Jewish and just Jewish. Wow. I absolutely believe that. That's beautiful. But that's a whole other topic. of conversation. You have to be like select a level like in, into the hip hop community. It has to do with our level of humanity, I think. Well, no, look for real though absolutely right because why like if you grow up with people who are different than you yeah you're not trying to you're trying you're like i love your babies too and it's going to change and i think that's what you know anyway this is yeah, this is you so grow up in like in you know suburban detroit yeah on you know in oak park on a block where it's you know every single block is like a white kid chaldean mm-hmm. hispanic mexican yeah. you're gonna black, see the world differently like Asian. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's different than growing up in Mars or, yeah. uh, well, there's a difference between like you, like you know, when I look at, there are people in the, when I think of white people, right. Not white people who just happen to be white, but like whiteness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, when we think about supremacy, right. Mm. We think about this concept. So, so I deeply, there's a, there's a writer who I love named Kiesi Lehman. He's my favorite writer. And he had this thing on uh, that he had written that I read and it changed my life. But he talked about if there was, he said it so beautifully, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase it. But he said, if you, if you learned anything from black people, 
if you, you all take everything from us, if you learn one thing, it's that we never, ever, ever harm our enemy's children. He's like, you want to take everything, but you don't want to take that. Wow. And I thought it was really powerful because there is something to be said, right? Like there are people who we know do not love all the children. And there are people who, you know, love, um, who love all the children. Right. And I think like that's, so mm. the whole thing about having children and not having children where, which is why I asked you about your identity was because, and also I guess like we're online, like people don't all see who we are, yeah, you know, yeah. like ever we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm adopted too. So like no one knows who I am based off my name. Right. Like I could have a total Jewish name. I have a friend who's Chinese and she's a completely Jewish name. because She was yeah. adopted. Like yeah. no one knows, like it's complicated. So I try to make it like, cool. I try to be very clear no, about cool. it. Cause you never know. But I had, there's an indigenous woman who, um, who I'm lucky enough to learn from. But one of the things that she had said, um, very publicly was that, so, you know, and I, and I'm not, and just to be clear, I'm not speaking to people who are like very clearly just like, I just choose not to have children. I think anyone can choose not to have kids, like choose not to have kids. Totally fine. So this is not about you, but I do think there's a difference between that and people who give you this whole spiel about why you shouldn't. Right. Mm. Because of like the economy and the environment and all of that, because you know what? I'm like, could you be more white? Because if you've experienced, right. If you have actually experienced what it means to have every single part of your identity extinguished, like black people have, like Jewish people have like, right. So many lists. There's so indigenous to America, right? Like there's so many people that is not even a thought. It's like, of course we are. Mm. Of course. What do you mean? Yeah. Of Like, it's not even a question. Yeah. It's just such a different mindset. And I think that's so important to remember, right? Yeah. Like, it's it, like, like I, I have plenty of friends. Don't have kids. Cool. Like, don't have kids. But, and, they don't, they, and they love my babies. They're not like, don't bring your kids over. I don't like kids, right? Yeah. Like, and then, but I also have a, um, a number of white people in my life who are no longer really in my life who have those kinds of perspectives mm. and they cannot understand me. They don't understand. They never wanted to understand, right? They're, they're all the white friends you couldn't keep, right? <laughs> the ones who couldn't really understand or take the time out to I, see who you I really think it are. Shifts. I think it shifts like, mm -hmm. because when you're young and you're idealistic, like maybe you have this idea that, you know, children, uh, you know, destroy the world because mm -hmm. they, <laughs> use too many diapers and yeah, right. um all true or, but like all they other grow problems. up to to drive cars mm -hmm. and like be consumers and yeah like you know maybe you know humans humans cause human. problems you know we we definitely don't um act in harmony or um uh, in um homeostasis with our right. environment the way we um did right you know, totally the way our ancestors did mm -hmm. but maybe when they're 40, 50, they're, the, something will shift, you know, mm -hmm. especially I think women probably have this kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. Once you hit that biological urge starts taking hold in mm -hmm. your late thirties, forties, and you start feeling yeah, it's like, like you're actually like, you actually need to figure it out. Now. Yeah. <laughs> Decide, make a choice. yeah. I mean, it's a lot of like my friends on Instagram, you know, posting mm -hmm. about freezing their eggs and things People are doing that. It's yeah. getting real. It is getting real. Absolutely. It's getting real. So what do you think about suicide? We had the mm, biggest year for suicide since 1941 was the last year we mm. had this many suicides per capita in the U.S. Uh, 2022 was our, our biggest year. <sighs> Although very, very small 
uh, popul- small percentage of those suicides were in the black community, since mm-hmm. we've been talking about race so much. Asian was the smallest. So it was like 20%. Uh, like Whatever. It was like a tiny little bar. And then the uh, black population, tiny little bar. The Hispanic bar is like almost the exact same as the black bar. And then the white bar is like, and it's all old white men. And it was like the most, most of like the biggest growth is like uh, 50 to 70 year old white men. And then mm-hmm. um, there was actually a decrease in the kids. The kids Thank God. Uh, during COVID in the 2021, 22 or 2020, 2021 had this big spike and now it's back down. Um, so it's actually decreased. Before I answer that question, I'm curious before I influence you, I'm curious what you think. Yeah. Um, well, suicide <laughs> is very, very, very touchy subject. I think yeah. it's really, you know, there's, there are ways to go overboard in, in Canada. Like you have this um, right to death basically where it's like um, anyone can, can take themselves out for any reason at any time. And I think it's too much. I think like there's, there's ways to kind of go too far because if you're just like, I mean, like, you know, on the one hand, you're going to do it anyway, right? It's kind of like abortion, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. you're going to make it happen. It, you're going to do it. Um, so like Absolutely. maybe it should be provided in a safe way by the state or whatever. I'm not sure. But like, it does seem to me like maybe if the state is actually providing the means that there should be like a, a mortal illness, like cancer or some kind of like serious, not painful. Not just like, I just decided this because Today you sucked. never know, you might like change your mind. Yeah. 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 And I think that's what happened with Kevorkian, right? Like that was mm-hmm. the big Detroit mm-hmm. story was like yep. Dr. K when I was growing up, he was doing suicides out of his van and yep. it did seem like the way he was doing it. And I, I don't know the story like incredibly well, but it seemed like most of the people he helped die um, were like terminally ill. Mm-hmm. They were like very, very sick people that, mm-hmm. that, and, and, and his machine, he actually rigged it up. He was obviously very intelligent. He was a physician, whatever. Um, not that all of us are, um, <laughs> um yeah, anyway, right. he, That's he, what I he made them <laughs> press the button themselves. So yeah, like right. legally he was right. not, not on the hook so much, but, um, ultimately I think he did get in trouble, but anyway, I have a lot of things. I have a lot of thoughts about it. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, why do you think white, the white male piece of this is so why it's growing? Yeah. Ooh, that's, yeah, that's a really interesting question. Like elderly white men. I think you have this, um, this failure of utility. Like as you get older, you kind of like, if you, if you haven't integrated yourself into society in the right way and you Mm. haven't like found your, um, like your role as the leader of your family or found your role as like a leader in your community, mm-hmm. taking responsibility in some way, you're, you're kind of just floundering. Yeah. And you just don't have like any reason to keep going. And mm-hmm. a lot of the time, I think it probably is health. I think there's a lot of like mental health is like a huge deal here. So depression, anxiety, I think those are probably the biggest killers. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's where I think, so I think of depression and anxiety as actually symptoms and not diagnoses. Yeah, that's what I want to talk to you about is what is depression? How do you feel like, how do you actually think about these things? Let's pivot back to suicide. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think that, um, so yeah, so I think of, of like sort of depression and anxiety are like these, <clears throat> these sort of like overarching, like here we are, these are diagnoses. I don't think about, well, like I have a different 
perspective of diagnosing anyway, right? Like I don't pathologize people, mm. um, even no, though it's my job to no, do that. No personality disorders, no so mood I disorders. So I will do it. It's not like I won't do it, but I will only do it in the way that it makes sense for a client. Like, how is this going to help you? Like, I'm not going to write it down so that it's like written down in your file for the rest of your life. I'm just kind of like, well, how is this going to help you? Is this going to help you get access to things you need at school? Is this going to help you get medication that you need? So it's a, it's a thing that we do together. I make people very aware of what it means that I put that in there. Like what is, what are the repercussions of that? And then we just kind of decide together what we're going to do. But I'm, I'm definitely not doing what they teach you in school to do, which is in, in with insurance tells you, which is the first time that I see you that first moment, as soon as you're gone for me to get paid, I have to give you a diagnosis. Um, but I think when I think about suicide, so I'm, I mean, this is like, this is, this might sound more like my artistic self than, or creative self than my therapeutic self to some people. But like, again, it's the same thing to me. But like, when I think about, I don't think about it in terms of like somebody's feeling anxious or depressed. Like I think about it in terms of like, what is living for? Right. If we don't have like an understanding of what we're doing here, you know, um, and if we're not supported right. And who we are actually who we are, if we're not supported in that authenticity, of course, people are going to start to ask like, what is going on? So it can be divided into those two sort of categories of like people who are killing themselves due to, uh, whatever mental illness or, you know, whatever. And then people who are like, I'm really old and sick and I'm just like really over this. And like, no one will let me do this. That's a different thing. Right. So let's separate out the, the suicidality of people who are like, I'm really ill. I'm actually ready to go. And I just can't. Okay. Let's put that over there. I respect y'all. You do what you got to do. Hopefully someday I'll help you do what you got to do because I deeply believe in like people dying with dignity. There's that over there. Amen. Over here, we have people who are actually like, it goes back to what I said earlier about like, what makes us sick is our society, right? when you really look into the reasons, like we could say like somewhat on a piece, like when we read these studies and we read these articles, it's like, so-and-so died. These groups of people died because they had large levels of depression. Right. I'm like, okay, well, why were you depressed? No one is ever going further and really addressing the depths of why, like, so adoptees have the highest suicide rate of anyone. Beyond even veterans, military veterans. Wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Root well, cause. some people root don't want to understand that, that we are military cause. veterans, which is a whole a nother war. Com- um, yeah. So I think there's this like piece where it's like, no, we actually like kind of are right. We are, we're babies. Right. So we're children, but it's like, just like any other child who's in a war zone right now. Right. Like those kids are going to grow up and they're not going to be okay. So either they're going to grow up like any other kid who is having a hard time um, and disconnected from any sort of sense of self and they are going to act out or they're going to go inward, right, and become so depressed that they can't take it anymore. So I think that it's kind of like we all have different ways of expressing ourselves. We kind of go external or we go internal and we can all we all kind of express things differently. But I do think that the questions we're asking are wrong. It's not like, oh, mental health. Why are you killing yourself? Because you have anxiety. Because How about you're killing yourself because you um, can't get the surgery, the like gender-affirming surgery that you need 
you know, to, to, to love yourself and to care for yourself and to, to believe and like have a connection to who you are. How about that? So I, I think that like, as we're doing this work and doing these studies, it's just as important instead of like categorizing everybody in some sort of like DSM, you know, diagnosis. Like I'm not interested in terms of like why people are killing themselves based on a diagnosis. Mm. I want to know why, why depression is not a why Mm. that's just like, that's like, that's just like you have the sniffles. Why? Do you have the flu? Do you have COVID? Do you have RSV? Like, why do you have this? It's just a basic cold. I want to know why you have the sniffles. I want to know why this is happening. Here's the way that the argument potentially breaks down Mm -hmm. is there's actually no treatment for any of those different things. So if there's, you know, I don't actually care why you have the sniffles Mm -hmm. unless there's a treatment. So I don't, Again, like yes. if there's a Tamiflu, yeah. then like maybe it, it's worth running a rapid flu. Mm-hmm. But like, otherwise, why remdesivir is is not really just like a routine treatment unless you're in the hospital. So, anyway, interesting. That's the, yeah, that's the only reason. Like, I I care. I don't know right. exactly how it pertains to yours. I guess a little bit it pertains to mental health, mostly because like maybe the drugs for depression are different from the drugs for anxiety. But again, like. I, I couldn't agree more. I think we have to get to root causes. Well, I think that what you just said is really important because that is why we diagnose. So the DSM is not because therapists wrote the DSM. It's a psychiatry. It's all about psychiatry. It's literally, is there a medication? That's all it is. We diagnose people to find out medications. Okay. I don't give a shit about that. I believe in medication. Like I'm not like anti-medication to be fair. Like I've used medications. Um, I, I, I'm not anti-medication, but I, I'm also not like, ignorant to the idea that like diagnosis exists so that we can medicate people, not so we can actually like improve their lives or figure out what's really going on. So I'm like, all right, if you're a psychiatrist and you want to do that, go ahead, do your thing, go whatever. But my job, if I see my job as more than just diagnosing people so they can get some medicine and I see my job as actually healing, then it then becomes my job to say, what is the root source of this? What is, okay, you have, you're an addict. Okay. We can go to 12 steps. Okay, cool. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. I want to know who you are. I want to know where you come from. I want to know what your parents are like. I want to know what your ancestors are like. I want to know if we have any idea who they even might be. I want to know if you know their names. I want to know everything because that is how I do my work is, is understanding that depth. Right. And so when I think about people who, you know, and suicidality and all of that, I think about, I think about people who are invisible, I think about people who are not seen. I think about people who have, and maybe the need is that they need to die and no one is listening to them. And maybe the need is that they, um, or, you know, they want need, whatever that's their need. Or maybe it is that they, they literally live in a society that hates them. Or maybe it's because they have toxic shame because of toxic masculinity. And like, they just like can't provide for their family. And they realize like, wow, I just really like messed up my entire life. And now I'm about to die and I'm old. And my kids hate me. Like, I don't know. Right. Like there's so many reasons and there's so much depth in terms of like the choices and decisions we make. And I think that a lot of the work that I seek to do is to focus in and, and hone in on that. Who are you? Who are you? Right. And, and that is an individual, um, that is an individual road and in a DSM five, there's nothing individual about it. It's just like here we have medication for you or not. Most people are over medicated. Like the, the people that I see, the first time I see them, you know, you go over everything. What are you taking? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm like horrified, almost 
95% of the time, I am horrified to see what people are taking. Couldn't agree more. And my own personal experience, same thing. I had postpartum depression. I had a psychiatrist trying to give me antipsychotics. No suicidality, no whatever. You know, and I'm just like, no, on top of like- wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just like I don't, but I'm like I don't have any of those. And oh. then the next, and then the next specialist you're going to see is me for the movement disorder that he causes, yep, literally absolutely. Parkinsonism induced by the Abilify or whatever yep. choice they were mm-hmm. going to make. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's so I think it's insane. like so important that people like you and I do this kind of work because we recognize that you have you you have to do the most. So there are people who are like I don't want anything to do with any of those systems who do this work, and and more power to you. You're just as you're doing important work, right? Like. Cool. And I think there's something so powerful about what we're doing where we have a foot in and a foot out because we, we are in a place where people are just coming and they just have this like trust and we're like, Hey, (laughs) this is more complicated, you know, or looking at it in a more in-depth way. And that's such a gift. How has the cash, um, business side of things enabled you? So the majority of six, oh my gosh. (laughs) This is the question that almost everyone has because um, everyone shits on cash pay therapy for lots of reasons, right? Because we devalue therapy because it's women's work. Uh, Healing work is considered women's work often or it's considered the work of the the people, right? Where it's like, we just are supposed to like do this. And, you know, even though I went like, even though I'm like $250,000 of debt from school, but like whatever. Yeah. Um, But like, I guess I don't have to see you and raise you one. Yeah, no, I'm sure you will, right? And I'm just like, this is ridiculous, Like, but I'm not supposed to make any money. Okay. Um, and then I guess because I'm like a social justice person, I'm not supposed to make any money too, which is like ridiculous. Um, I'm a black woman. I have so much to offer. I'm an adoptee and like I absolutely deserve to like live my life. But I think that how it helps me, there's a number of ways that it helps me. The, the, there's a myth that most people use insurance. That's a myth uh, in the therapeutic world. The like uh, 60, they, they think that a lot of it is underreported. So it's like 65 is probably closer to 75 people, act, 75% of people actually use self-pay. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's actually very high. That's dope. <clears throat> so most of us don't know. I'm sure that. They don't want to, they don't want us to know about it because they want us to be absolutely just, I don't want to say suckling. Um, they want us to be married yeah. to our insurance policy. Absolutely, they do. And this goes back to my interview with Bus Crates because he said we all still we all the only That's reason we're working homie. Wilkinsburg homie. The only reason we're working is because we need insurance because yes. otherwise we'll die. Yes, yes, and I and yes. yes, yes. Our families will die mm-hmm. if we stop only, going to work. Yes, yes. Yes, he. I mean, of course, he's right because he's the best. He's been my friend for a very long time, and I. I'm just so lucky to have people like that around me. It's crazy. Um, but he's absolutely crazy. right. Crazy. Um, Universal healthcare six, 16 days ago. Let's go. Let's go. What's so the, it's unbelievable like, because on. I think like, so when I think about like people often talk, so I guess I'm going to set this up in the therapeutic world, the majority of therapists. So therapy, therapy is actually founded by our Jewish brothers and sisters, you know, um, historically sure. that's like the root, the root is like, what just fucking happened? Mm. I want to understand this. And then it kind of morphed, right? Over time, you have more and more people, you have more, you know, so it was initially very male and then it changed over time to become very female, uh, you know, not, um, uh, uh, you know, the genders of a change. But, but right now it's like primarily white women who practice mm. therapy. 
And um, we, that's, we can have a whole separate conversation about that. But the reason why it's very dangerous is, is because, because of that, there is a lot of saviorism. There is a lot of this idea that, like, I have the right to do the work that I'm doing just because of my identity, because obviously I know everything, right? <laughs> um, and there's, there's so many things that are just wrong. The reason why, um, the, the few reasons why, so I've had terrible experiences in therapy, which I've alluded through this conversation, but terrible experiences, mm. misdiagnosis, um, uh, just full blown shamed, um, just like, just completely like people who literally had no understanding of who I was at all, who thought they had the right, didn't refer me out. Like typically if I go to you and I'm like, I need a urologist. You're like, I'm not a urologist. Here's a urologist. Right. In therapy, it's not like that. <laughs> they'll, they'll like say they want to refer, wow. but like I said, they pretend to refer because they'll, because everybody thinks they're the expert. Mm. So how, like, at least you guys are like, I do this, 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 and this. We don't have that. People can just say that. They can just say in the therapeutic space, even though we're healthcare, mm. they can still say, oh yeah, I treat trauma. Well, how, what makes you unique to treat trauma? Just because you're a therapist? Ask people specifically. When you see a therapist, what makes you qualified to do this work specifically? That's not school. Do we need like accreditation boards, like what we have for yoga? Like, do we need... Uh, uh, do we need subspecializations? Do we need, I think we you, need you to start honesty. a school for? Well, I am. So like a lot of the work <laughs> that I'm doing right now with the trippy therapist is really, fo so I'm getting the letters after my name that I need to do supervision for students that are incoming. Oh. So that's kind of like the price. So I'm creating an archetype. That's kind of like yeah. what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So I'm working on that. But I think what we really need is honesty. We need all of these white women, particularly white men too, but particularly white women, because that's who's like the majority of these people to sit with what you, what are you really doing? Mm. What gives you the right to think that you can just like work with anyone? Every single therapy, we only have so much space in our heads, right? Figure out what it is that you have to offer and stick to it. This could just bring them to me, bring them to me, bring them to me. I'm mm. like, if you are not booked already because you have a need, then I'm like, I don't know about you. What are you doing? What are you doing? I am so suspicious of people who just have so much space. Unless you like mm. just started your thing. I'm like, why do you have so much space? Because you're literally, you go on, you go on any of these websites and they're like, yeah. I, there's like, bullet point after bullet point. I treat PTSD. I treat oh, anxiety. I treat, I treat depression. I treat, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, there'll be like 60 things. And they were told to do that for, um, uh, what is it? SEO mm -hmm. search engine optimization. So it's the same thing in yep. medicine that we have where yep. you, um, you list all the different all the diagnoses things. that you treat in, in movement disorders on your homepage along with your, um, you know, the individual practitioners yeah. that you have in your group. Mm -hmm. And so you have dystonia, myoclonus, myoclonic epilepsy, Parkinson's, Parkinsonism, mood disorder, you know, uh, right. like everything. You, yeah. you, you list it all so that if anybody's using the internet and they type in, yeah. you know, Pittsburgh, dystonia, then they, they see you. It's so wild. It has because nothing it's to like, do with what you're actually If you're like. running a group, it's like, okay, I get it. All right. People are like, all right, you can come in and they can say, oh, I have these people, they work on this thing and you have like all this... But a lot, like most of this is just like individual people and they're all like, this is what I do. And I'm like, you, there's no way you even have like enough space in your brain to like be able to heal like all mm. of those things. So I think a lot of it is like being honest. Like for me, I feel okay listing those things because I know that the work I do is focused on identity. Yeah. So I'm like, I will connect everything to what it is that I do. And I explain that before we even start and give you the option to go do whatever it is that you need to do. But I think it is. Um, it's a mess. It's a, it's a big mess. Right. But it's like, this is the system that we work 
within. And so even though I work within this system, I try to focus in and keep myself in the spaces of, of social justice movements because that's actually like who I actually care about. I don't care what some therapist thinks about what I'm doing. I don't care what a board thinks about what I'm doing. Take my license. I don't care. I don't care. If you're really going to drag me through the mud like that, probably for something ridiculous, whatever. And if I actually created some kind of harm, then I'll own it. Right. But like, I think that like, I don't care. Like I, I, I know because I've already figured out a way to do this work in every kind of way you could possibly do this work up until this point. I will just find another way to do what I do. It will never end. Like we will always be doing the work of liberation, no matter what or who we are in the spaces that we're in. It's going to happen no matter what. So how does the cash pay help? So the cash pay helps because it thanks. <laughs> so the cash pay helps because it besides the like privacy, right? So there's two parts of it. There's the part for me. It helps liberate me. I don't have to give you a diagnosis immediately. I can take my time. Nothing is going on your record. No one is seeing like when you try to get, you know, insurance, nobody's like, oh, they have this and this and this diagnosis. Um, if you're trying to do anything, uh, you know, I'm like not a gun person, but obviously like that matters, right? When it comes to like buying firearms, when it comes mm. to getting cannabis, when it comes to doing anything that is regulated by our government, it matters what what your records say. So I think wow. these are other things that we need to consider. A lot of people were like, yeah, cannabis, yay, but didn't recognize that a lot of black people were like, hell yeah. And then they were restricting their ability to get firearms. So now you have people who are like actually probably healthier because they're like doing what they're seeing a therapist. Yep. They're, they're doing that who actually should be the ones who are like, if anybody's going to have it, you're probably the safest person to have it who now can't access it. Totally. So there's a lot of layers that people don't understand. So a lot of that is like about education. So there's, there's, the side that benefits me. I don't have to take the same ridiculous notes in these ridiculous fake voice. Like the client was a uh, patient was, I don't even use the word patient. Patient was euthymic and blah, blah, blah. Like I don't have to do any of that. Um, we're working together. You don't have it. to have an immediate diagnosis. Also, it's extremely private. So a lot of people mm. don't realize, like, if you have a child and you're like, I don't know what's going on before I send them professional. Can I just maybe see what you think? Come see, go to a private pay person. It doesn't have to go on the record right away. Some people don't realize, like, you don't have to stick with me forever, even if you don't have the money forever. But, like, let's talk first before you get your kid in the system. Mm. Let's, um, let's, like, let's, like, for, like, literally, let's, like, create a space people are talking about access let's create a space where felons can go where they mm. feel safe because they're not going to trust anybody in the system you could trust me i'm not taking insurance not I can taking do insurance I not taking notes nope game changer for game privacy changer for privacy Fuck, i mean forget game about hipaa changer. you're you're way beyond that I'm because it's, beyond you're that. not even putting it into a computer system i don't have to you're not no. it's not just that you're not sending it to the insurance company where literally anyone can look at it yes and will and will you're it doesn't, it's like, it doesn't have to exist. And it can literally just, even if it amazing. exists, it can literally just say like, it could be paper Isaac was feeling like, pretty good today. Right. And right. Blah, blah, blah. Like it can be like so basic, like, uh, and you, you know, that's it. Not suicidal. Wow. End of story. Like it wow. doesn't, it's like, I don't have to, I don't, cause insurance, people don't understand how invasive insurance is. They are looking, not only can they mess my stuff up at any time and say like, well, I don't like the way you did that. Actually, I'm not going to pay for those sessions and then come back and say, give us $10,000 at the end of the year after an audit, because they do that all the time. 
Yeah. So there's that piece of it. So it's actually a very unjust system, both for private practice, which are usually small business, women owned businesses. Right. So both it's unjust in that way, but it's also like harmful for a client and you don't know where that information is going to go. So I think it's important that we explore cash pay, particularly when it's something that we're concerned of, like, you know, concerned for like safety, privacy, just come first. And then if I think like, all right, this feels, you know, we'll talk about it. I'll tell you what this would look like under a systemic system. And then you can decide if that's best, right? If that's what we need to do to get your kid the services they need, then that's what we need to do. But like, I think that there's a lot there, right? And I think we are always worried about access, access, access. And we forget, we have this assumption that like everybody that's like a, like every marginalized person is poor or every marginalized person values other things over their mental health. Like, it's just not true. There are lots of people who will pay me willingly to, to, to do this work because they care about their healing. And most marginalized people care about their healing because they're spiritual people. They care about their healing. It's a myth, right? So a lot of this is about myths that, and, and propaganda, right? That these systems sort of like put into play, um, and we play into and, and feed into where we are like, oh, certain people, they just don't have any money and they'll never be able to do that. And you're actually not helping anyone. You're only helping the elite. Like I, I don't work with any rich white people. Mm. Like that's not, I don't, I don't. Yeah. Like, nobody owns your business. Why There's do you think that that's all I work pulling with? The strings, like. But if you call like any other therapist right now who works and takes insurance, that's what they will say to you. Like. I don't want to work. They'll say like, when I tell people what I do, they say like, I'm not trying to work with rich white people because they think that rich white people are the only people with money and who value their mental health. You know, there's always going to be community mental health. There's always going to be students. There's always going to be people filling that need because this is the system. I work with, I work externally to service people who are also not interested in those systems. Right. I'm working with people who are like, I want to change. Yeah. And I, or, or I want to solve a problem and I don't want my problem to now be documented in a system for the rest of my life because I called you and now your insurance makes me do that. So I think there's so much freedom and there's so many people who can be served without taking insurance and also the load that it takes off of me personally in terms of my workload, which means that I actually get to retain more money because instead of spending like, you know, X, Y, Z time taking notes, I'm spending like a quarter of that time, um, among other things. And then also I can talk about what I want to talk about. There's a lot of things if you take insurance that people could say that you're not supposed to say or do. Mm. I am much more free in how I talk to people, what I offer them, what I tell them to read, what I tell them to do. And if I'm going to say that I, I focus on liberation work, then that needs to look a certain way. There are plenty of places that I can send and move other, because I actually do phenomenal work out. Like I, when you get paid what you deserve in this work, you are able to serve more people. So instead of me working full time and being burnt out and miserable, I can work half as much time, get paid, feel good, and then go donate my time out elsewhere, else, elsewhere. So I can, I do a lot of work with prisons. I do a lot of, um, I actually don't believe in pro bono work. It's actually like built into our system that people always pay something, even if it's like $5, um, just because it's, it is like this investment in ourself. But, um, I can literally spend the rest of my week doing, I can do research. I can go to protests. I can, um, educate myself. I can go take classes. Like I can do all of the work that I need to do for the, like I've done more now charging cash full pay than I've ever been able to do in my life 
for the Amazing. people. Yeah. And that's, so I've, I just, I've noticed, I've learned that it's a myth. I've learned so hard that it's just a myth, you know, that this, this, th- there's only certain ways that we can be helpful in this world. Would you ever take barters? Like I remember when so I was DJing. We're not legally allowed to, to do that. Like so, one time I played the, uh, the shot leather mm. jacket company opening party mm-hmm. in New Jersey, um, Long Island city, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, they gave me this shot perfecto. I still have it downstairs. So legally therapists so are nice, not allowed. Our ethics code does not allow us jacket. to, huh. but a lot of therapists do anyway. Yeah. Barter would be cool. And what about, um, the other pieces, the, like the apps, um, you kind of mentioned, Oh it yeah. So like those big bit, companies, headspace, like does yeah. everybody need therapy? Those are all hedge funds. Should everybody be in therapy? Does everybody have, does everybody have this type of I think of work everybody should be in therapy, but I don't think that, um, there's enough therapists to actually service that correctly. Hmm. Um, hedge funds are literally who buys up these. So like when you build a large enough group, like hedge funds and different, like literal businesses, they call entities, they come along, venture capitalists and buy your stuff and create things like better help, et cetera. Um, do not do that, please. I know a lot of the like messaging is like, just get whatever you can just get like, no, absolutely not. There are many people locally who provide services at low costs, um, and take insurance that are going to be much safer options than the, some of these like very large, huge companies. I absolutely do not believe that. Now I know good therapists who's, who do work through these organizations, but I also, so it's not like you might get lucky and get like, you know, but I, I don't trust it. And I actually hope that eventually we're able to dismantle it and go back to a different system. It's extremely dangerous. Um, for lots of reasons. Uh, and like I said, it's like big box businesses. It's like an, the Amazon of, you know, what therapy. A, what about the, and none of those therapists are getting paid well, which is another part to think about. A lot of people do that because I, I'm a very, I'm a very entrepreneurial person and unafraid. I don't care. Like if I lose everything tomorrow, I'm like, whatever, I'll figure it out. Most people are not like that. They're afraid to make money. They're afraid to go out on their own. They're afraid to be entrepreneurial. So they, they just, they need money. So we're regular people, just like anyone else. We have to like eat, we have to feed our kids. And so we go, well, I have to have a job. And so they take these jobs, right? With these big box like companies because they feel like they have to, they have no other choice if they want to make money. What about the, one of the things I talk about a lot on the podcast, which is this idea that sharing physical space actually matters. Mm. Yes, and a lot I agree. Of people talk to me about <laughs> why I don't bring in guests from out of town over Zoom mm. or something like that. Interesting, it's yeah. like there's plenty of podcasts I that I enjoy work. that do that. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, and, and the sound actually seems to be coming along. The technology seems to be advancing. Mm. But yeah. that's not what this project is about. It's about being in a room with one person. It's different. And, and, trying to find some common ground mm-hmm. and, and learn something from mm-hmm. them. And hopefully I'm one of the few therapists who see people in person still. Wow, It's not, in fact, I have a number of very brilliant therapist friends who, who do not see people in person at all. Wow. Um, and so it's not that I don't believe that you can get good help that way, but like it's hard. It's like really, really hard. And I don't enjoy it personally. Um, and I do think, Regardless, it hinders your, um, it hinders how quickly you can move forward. I can't do my job as well. Like when you're on a screen, I can't see all of your body language. I can't now I can't have you like the things that I would do with you in a space where it's like, we're actually in person. 
I'm, I can't do with you in the same way online, you know, cause I, but also like, it's the way that I practice. Right. So I, I do a lot of physical somatic work with people, a lot of movement and you can't do those kinds of things in the same way. I do things that we're probably not supposed to do. Like you're not supposed to really touch your clients, which I think is psychotic. That that is, that is the definition of insanity. Um, I've, I've done work with yoga teachers who don't touch like, it's like, I understand like the respect, right? So it's like, I understand like if I'm working with like a sexual, like, um, uh, abuse survivor, I'm not just going to be like, bam, let me put my (laughs) hands all over you. But like in, 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 you've been in many yoga classes where people just ask, like, is it okay if I give you this? Yes. Okay, cool. And I think like, that's fine. But I also think that like in a therapeutic respect, you know, there's, there's like, I had a client once who I'm like, I don't think this person has like actually been touched, hugged, nothing. And I did an exercise where they were, and you know, if somebody reports me for this, then so be it. But I did an exercise where we sat back to back and we did this like breathing matching exercise. Um, and we actually paired it with music and afterwards, like we, you know, and, and they just broke down in tears. Like, Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't think anybody's has touched me on any level. Just my, just feeling like probably the tiniest bit of my back breathing. And I'm not supposed to do that. I mean, that's what I mean. Like been some really that. cool ones I've, I've been a part <laughs> of at uh, music festivals. The one was, mm. um, there was one like really amazing one was like a full out of body experience, which I'll talk about. But the other one that was more similar to this one was where they just paired us up as I think both were at Okeechobee, which I was just like, wow, amazing, amazing music festival in Florida. When I was there, I would go up and, and drive up with my buddies. And, um, this time, like, and I, I, I'm the guy who wakes up at eight, nine, ten o'clock and goes to yoga because that's just like what I do. Mm-hmm. And, they, and and that was one of the main reasons that I went to the festivals because that was something that they had every day. That there mm-hmm. was like a different, and, and I actually knew some of the teachers and I knew it was going to be good. Wow. And so I went the, like the first morning that I woke up and, you know, you get out of the tent and you have this like terrible feeling of having slept on the ground, whatever, but you, you go and do it. And, and I sat and they paired us up and it's just like, some man that I've never seen before and I will never see again. And they just had us look into each other's eyes. Oh, that's a tantric exercise. I do that do too. <laughs> do it for about like for as long 30, as it 45 takes. seconds. Both of us are crying and hugging each other and trying to just like, it was crazy, that's man. What I like, do. Never, I never felt anything you know, like that. that what was changed crazy. my relationship with my husband when we had problems many, many years ago, early on in our relationship. And I, I, it was like, it definitely a turning point. It was one of those moments where you could definitely go either way. Wow. We're out or we're in. Wow. And locally there, so there's a woman named, um, uh, named Kelsey and her friend, her best friend, Diane Gugamo, she is, um, she is a tantric specialist. She travels the world all over the world, like Brazil, Africa, everywhere. She does all this incredible work, but she's from here. She was actually my husband's like, her dad was my husband's social studies teacher or something and like all the rise. But she, um, came to town and did this with us. Wow. Uh, it changed our entire relationship. I really see it as a turning point in mm. our life mm-hmm. where I was like, all right, this is where we are going to win. Like we're going to do this. But the same thing happened. Like we looked at each other and it was like, we just were like puddles. We, we were just mm-hmm. like, we saw each other as like humans and not just as these like images that we had sort of created in our minds with our like own expectations. It was life changing. Wow. And yeah, that's it, the kind of stuff that I like to do with people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, I mean, we really are like, we're so much more than these bodies. So it's, more. it's very clear. I think very when you clear. talk to us, when you talk to people who've had these type of experiences, old, these old souls, you know, mm-hmm. when I talk to my mom, anyone like you, 
you get a picture of like yep. this is just a it's a shell. It so, is a shell. So it's like you know just something bouncing off of our visual cortex mm-hmm. and something that mm-hmm. like carries our voice. Even our voice isn't us, right? This is just like this is just how my vocal cords reflect these ideas, which are not yeah. coming from me. No, there's something all the outside. thoughts in your head are not your own. Like everything is no. coming to us and we are deciding what to keep and not to keep. Like when we are so righteous and so like, you know, I know. And I'm like, you didn't read anything. Like, how do you know? But I know it's like, <laughs> what? Like, what do you mean? Like we only know what we know. You know, and it's like we have to figure out a way to let go of our fear and be brave so that we can create a loving and safe community for everyone. And it's possible. I think so, too. I, 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 I'm very optimistic. I said it on, I think, with Kev. I was like, um, I'm very uh, bullish on humanity. <laughs> I want, um, you know, but, but I think that there are there are a lot of obstacles and one of them yes, is two party political systems gotta like, go um you know gotta go if you think that like biden and trump is is any kind of a choice there's <sighs> there's a lot of education that needs to happen lots to <laughs> he, say the least he invented the crime bill you know yeah, you were talking absolutely. earlier about yes. the mm-hmm. about the changes in the 80s and wilkinsburg yep. and i mean that yep. was the author yes of the crime yes. bill that established well, I didn't, crack cocaine versus powder yes cocaine and i did, i left this part out of the story but you're gonna appreciate Joe this Biden. because i am well we didn't really talk about being a parent too much but being a mom has completely made me lose my mind <laughs> uh and so during this conversation you will see how i just jumped around from thing to thing and it was kind of spaced out but that question was so my best friend growing up my best friend in grade school like first grade right i found out years later while, while I'm like literally growing up in my neighborhood, watching these people leave, watching these people go to prison, her father was one of Clinton's lawyers and like literally wrote the RICO Act. Literally wrote it. Wild. Yeah. Gave himself a heart attack, eventually left that and went into um, philanthropy. So RICO, for those that don't know, my understanding is this is like the racketeering law yeah. where you're basically, you can... It, it, you can it, it's a conspiracy it's a right? conspiracy it's like it's a way oh you of... talk to liana so we're getting you too and then everyone you know your whole family all your yeah. everybody can go away for infinite periods of and time. they used it against the mafia that was like for mm-hmm. people that are into like um sopranos yeah. or uh, well they Goodfellas. think they used it to say they were going Godfather. against people with the audience like the that was mafia, the but initial were, idea yeah. yeah but they actually were using it to go uh to to create the to war to destroy the black community yeah, exactly and, yeah yeah. Thank for you for using very clear terms. Destroy the black. I mean, that's exactly what it was. Right. Yeah. I and mean, that's exactly what it was. And that's exactly what they were doing. And I think like they made everyone think like this is for these other things. And it's yeah. like they used it for that here and there. But it was really about obliterating. I mean, if you've ever read the Moynihan report or anything like that, like, you know, the goal was to obliterate these communities. Because, again, we're talking about like much larger systemic. You had these like issues, power um, surges, these these moments of of change and transition where you felt this thing rising up that things might change in the sixties. You had it with the black Panthers and then Mm -hmm. you had like COINTELPRO 69 and then 70 you had, I mean all the assassinations, which were obviously like CIA, FBI, Mm -hmm, no question, mm -hmm. right? The state just takes people out if they, if they get too powerful and tell too much of the truth, Malcolm Mm -hmm. X, 
Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. Huey Lewis, Huey Newton, sorry. Yep, mm-hmm. Not Huey Lewis in the news. I've said that a couple times wrong, whatever. Um, <laughs> cool. But the movie is amazing. Um, yeah. Anyway, and then in the 1970, they actually wrote the legislation that yes. made marijuana, cannabis, mm-hmm. psilocybin, LSD, all Schedule One. Yes. So it's like, to me, it's very clear that these were connected. 100%. The the drugs were allowing people to see past the propaganda mm-hmm. that you had people thinking for themselves. Too many people were trying to get away from the doctrine, the dictates and the like capitalist ideology that was being, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, go to school, go to work, make money for the man, die sick and whatever. And too many people were waking up. And so they had Way to um, pull the plug. Absolutely. And it happens over and over and over again. We're seeing it now. I mean, we're literally seeing it like right now. Like it is constant. Like it doesn't matter what is happening in the world. Like it will always be a thing that they will try to take out the people who are helping you see. I think this is why what's happening right now in the world, particularly with the Israel-Palestine situation or not situation. I mean, it's a genocide. But I think like what's happening in terms of what we see in the in, in on Instagram, like this is the first Instagrammable. Like we mm. haven't seen any. Like we there have been plenty of these things. Like we know. Can you imagine if you think about like all of the historic? I mean, there's many genocides happening currently, currently, right in this moment. Yeah. But if you think about historically, how it would have changed if we saw this on our phone? Yeah, yeah. Vietnam, like how? How, would how much shorter would Vietnam like, have been? What would it have been if like had, if we like, saw it like right there? Yeah, South Vietnamese like actually had the. You know, it's just I feel Pol Pot, like it's the, unbelievable, yeah. right? To think yeah. about how this is like at everyone's fingertips, um, which is why they're working so hard in terms of the propaganda, in terms of the like keeping people like yeah, 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 yeah. showing the tunnels and the and the AK forty sevens lined up on the table. Well, whatever. even just like saying yeah. this says this, and it's like it doesn't say that. Like, it doesn't even say that. <laughs> The, like, what or are the, you yeah, or like about? the the computer had like what? Anyway, yeah. we can go down the road. I mean, it's but, a, I mean, it's it's textbook, right? And I think the, that's the important thing to know is that these are not isolated incidents. Like this is something that yeah. is happening in a very large way in front of us. But this is something that has happened many times to many people. At you know, historically, yeah. And this is just different because it is, um, and, and I and, and and I dare I say, in the best way. Because, so when I see, like, when we see these people and these parents, like, holding these children and they're, like, filming this. Awful. It's basically Emmett Till. It's It's literally, like, Emmett Till happened. And that mom was like, I am showing the world because you need to see what you did to my baby. And she just said that over and over again. Look what they did to my baby. Look what they did to my baby. That's the point. And it's rooted in that, like, need to create. Like to, to believe that every person is human. Like every child is a human. You don't get to pick and choose. Like this child is a terrorist. This child is bad. This child deserves to die. They're all babies. Well, yeah, know? I mean, it, it's, it, you can identify the problem when you just look at how the statistics are given to yeah. us. Well, yeah, They absolutely. just say 15,000 Palestinians. They don't say enemy combatants, Hamas, civilians. It's just 15,000. There's no There's number. no human. Here's one that's crazy for me. Aspect to it. Because I, obviously, like I've said, I mean, I have, you know, religious Jewish dad, 
you know, uh, I've been to Israel multiple times. I just posted a video of myself at 13 going and doing my bar mitzvah portion on top of Masada with the Israeli defense forces flying overhead as I'm reading out of the Torah. Wow. Um, wow. Know, I had That's so three, intense of an image. I had three. Oh, it's on my YouTube now. I have three. Bar, I had three bar mitzvahs, one at my dad's Orthodox, you know, shul, one at the uh, conservative, whatever, uh, synagogue that I went to where I did my Hebrew school and then, uh, in Israel. So obviously I see all kinds of things, but the, um, trying to think of what, what exactly I wanted to say about this. There's so much to get, get into. I think if I were to try to pick it apart about what's actually happening, Mm -hmm. and if I were to be a little bit on the cynical side or a little bit like, try to read between the lines. I feel like the two, the two state solution is over that this oh, is I Israel agree. saying we're they never taking everything. Yeah. I everything don't think they ever wanted it. from the river to the sea is about to become a reality, but it's going to be all Jews. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, not all Jews. It's going to be all Israel. Yeah. I was going to say like half of those people are like barely even like culturally Jewish. They like just took it from Europe and were like, Oh, we're going to take this. We had free everything. Like let's go. So, so, so here's the problem. If you, if it all becomes Israel is that there's already a large Arab population in Israel. And there's this major Arab population in East Jerusalem. There's a major Arab population Mm -hmm. in Gaza and in the West bank. And if you, allow everyone to instantly become citizens, which obviously should have happened 50 years ago. Should have been the only option. Then now you don't have the majority anymore. The the Jewish majority is gone. Mm -hmm. And so what's the solution? You expel them, you kill them, murder them, and you send them into Egypt and don't allow them to return. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's what's happening. I think that is what is happening. I think it's even worse though. I think it's like, I think it's something that has been because, and the reason I feel like that is because I, I am a black person and because I am like a social justice person. And I'm like, this is by design. It's just by design. Yeah. It's just part of like, cause this is so American. This is like the American thing to do. I mean, you heard that Biden, when he said, you know, um, if we didn't have an Israel, we'd have to invent it today. Like we'd have to, he said that like mm. years ago, this wasn't a new thing. He said, this was something he said I don't know, 30, 40 years ago or something. Yeah. Because like, they just like, and it's all like using just like they used Christianity. Like we use these religious systems, right. To convince people of all kinds of things. I think what is the most important part of all of this to pull out, um, because I probably have have to pick up my children soon. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. Um yeah. the the most important thing we'll have to do a part 2. Like we'll just be like audience, do you I want know, a part like 2 of this like super deep conversation? Um I know this is very different than what you're used to, but like maybe we need to just do a part 2. Yeah. Before you go out of town, it'll give us an excuse to hang out again. Yeah, man, I'd love that. But I think like what it comes down to ultimately at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about um, what happened um, with, with, in Philadelphia, you know, with black people in Philadelphia, home, the, home the Panthers. Yeah, yeah. And all of that it doesn't matter whether we're talking about Gaza. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the Holocaust. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. At the end of the day, we're talking about supremacy. We're talking about um, we're talking about people who oppress and oppressors. None of us are ever immune to becoming on one side or the other. Mm. Like at any moment I can. The Stanford prison experiment. Yeah. Anyone can just be like, actually, you know what? I hate you. 
And, and, and I think that the, the point of all of this at the end of the day is to recognize that like the cognitive dissonance that makes so many people ill, I think about what's happening right now, particularly myself, is the cognitive dissonance. Because I know people who have Black Lives Matter signs in their yard who are like, you know, burn them to dust. And I'm like, yeah, bulldoze. Do you hear yourself? How do you not see that dissonance? And this is what fascinates me about the work that I do is because that's, I want to understand that. And also I I want to, I want to figure out how I could never, Yeah, I could never, yeah, yeah, the book. I could never, how you can never be like that. The book is um, Hitler's willing executioners. Phenomenal book about I've read that. Yep. So look at you. I have. Um, I've read it. So, <laughs> so what we could go. do is we could um, <laughs> we could share our little libraries together, and we can attach them to this episode. A lot of them, and then yeah, we will do another that'd episode. That'd be crazy. Yeah, that would my, be so great. A lot of them are at my mom's house because you know, <laughs> I was just like what I grew up on was just reading. We didn't have a TV, and it's just like I, she had. I mean, she still is just lives among books. It's just a whole house of books, <sighs> so mostly cool. like Holocaust studies and. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of like um, just German studies in general because she's mm-hmm. interested in Bauhaus and design. Yeah. And then. Um, wow. Um, like um, a lot of history. So. It's imperative. It's imperative. Okay. A couple of things. Marian Evashevsky is the name that I couldn't remember of my form leader at. Yes. Community High. Yes. Shout out Marian Evashevsky. Yes. We used Shout to call it Evashevsky. Yes. Um, <laughs> the other, the other situation at the music festival was the drum circle where I had the out of body experience. I was just tired. I wasn't on anything. I just woke up. I, I just had, had not slept in like two days cause I was at different points and I, I couldn't find my way back to the camp. So I just slept in an igloo. And when I woke up, I was like, Oh, I looked at my watch and it was time for yoga. So I went to yoga, but it was just like a, it wasn't yoga. It was just a drum, um, mm-hmm. like a sound bath. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so we all laid down on our backs and then a guy came around with smells and then another guy, there were about four or five of them. One person had a drum and he was beating it. Another person was walking by me and saying, you are enough. You are enough. You're worthy. You're, you're you know, <laughs> you, you belong. And just like, uh, like people are beating drums and burning incense and smoke. And eventually I was just <laughs> transported, just, 300 feet above and I could see my body down there on the grass like laying there completely totally sober and it was just pretty phenomenal that's so cool that was also Okeechobee um but the uh final I don't know if we have to do final oh no but that's my husband definitely calling right now like where are you I have to pick up our children integration to change the culture of medicine Mm -hmm. was the topic of the talk that I gave at Georgetown with a clinical psychologist named um, uh, Ben Bensadon. And, um, a lot of it was about the stigma against psychiatry, mm-hmm. stigma against psychology. But for him, it was about his whole thing was, I belong on the faculty of the medical school. Psychology is necessary. We need to be teaching this to our medical students. This needs to be a part of absolutely American medicine. So yes. how can we integrate therapy? How can we integrate uh, you know, talk therapy. I think less than integration, the conversation is more about normalizing, but I think in order to normalize it, we have to also have higher expectations of each other. So I think like step one, let's have higher expectations of our therapists. That's step one, because we need to get rid of some of these people who have no business doing this work, um, who are causing a lot of harm because that is what is preventing people from doing the work. So I think like step one, like it's, it's unbelievable to me how many therapists are not speaking out about what's happening right now. For example, when it's like, who are like, I specialize in trauma. I work with refugees. 
One in three people are Palestinian refugees. One in three refugees in the world. One in three are Palestinian. One in three. Yeah. I specialize in yeah. it. Crickets. What do you mean you special? How do you specialize in that? But you don't even understand. Like, I think there is a real, I think that like step one is like, have these higher expectations of the people we work with. Ask them questions. Who are you? What's your deal? Why do you think you should be able to work with me? Right? Like whatever it is. Right. So I think like a lot of it is that, you know, advocating and being clear about our expectations and then moving forward in that. I'm not super mad if we don't move in a way that, um, like if they, if we keep this underground forever, I'm not, a, I'm okay with that too. Like I'm, we're, I know that no matter what we're going to do, what we're going to do, because people have always done this work. It's never not happened. It is community work and it will continue to be community work. Um, my concern is that it, it gets in the hands of the wrong people and that can do a lot of damage. And so I think thinking about it like that is more helpful in terms of like, okay, if it's going to be a thing, how can I make sure that it's only in the hands of the right people? You know, and that can look like training. That can look like these are the things that I, that should be involved in that. Like it can look like lots of things from the inside in terms of our advocacy in the work that we do and the expectations we have of each other. But that's kind of like, that's kind of where I'm at. And I think a lot of that is about like empowering everyday people to say like, just to, to any of their professionals, like what gives you the right to work with me? Amen. What gives you the right? Tell people how they can find you if they want help. The and Trippy Therapist. Wanna... That's it. Trippy Therapist online, thetrippytherapist.com. The Trippy Therapist. That's me. I love it. Liana. Liana. This was I so love good. you so much. This was so me wonderful. Too. Thank you so much so for wonderful. sharing your perspective. You have to let me do this again. This was awesome. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, I just feel like we have so much left. We have so much this left. This is awesome. Amazing. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's get a picture. <laughs>